Ben. Do you remember the Avatar logo? Uh, yeah, it was tribal yet futuristic. Papyrus! Oh, uh, sure. You know what you did? I know what you did! Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Avatar, the James Cameron version. Seemed as though it was inevitable. Avatar looked at us and said, I am inevitable. James Cameron looked at us and said, I am inevitable and snapped his fingers. In 3D. In 3D. And here at long last we are to discuss what at one point in time was the highest grossing film ever. And of course has been surpassed by uh, Avengers Endgame. Probably a couple of the Marvel movies, uh, but James Cameron was, you know, king of the castle, king shit of fuck mountain for several uh, <laughs> decades between this and Titanic. Julio, we always knew this would come across our desk. I certainly didn't think it would take seven years, but you had to know it was going to come to this one day. Uh, I mean, yes. Like, like so many movies that we reference constantly throughout throughout our episodes uh you know that at some point it, it's it's gonna happen you know it happened with Eurotrip, it happened with the rocker looks like it might finally happen with uh southland tales <laughs> <laughs> this this all eventually this all comes to pass what i wouldn't have anticipated was that we were going to be somewhat blindsided by this being a patron pick a patron demand mm. even that it feels like somebody out there got tired of waiting for us to tackle Avatar. <laughs> we were dragging our feet. We, we wouldn't yeah. commit, and so they they needed it. But before we dive into 2009's Game Changer, we want to first welcome you to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. As uh, you can tell already, my cohort, my co-host, my buddy Julio uh, is on the other side of the equation. We are here today to discuss 2009's Avatar, James Cameron's Avatar, Disney's Animal Kingdom's Avatar, the reason we're still getting 3D movies all the time, Avatar. Uh, not really. I mean, that's it was a big part of the trendsetter, but they do that because it makes money in international markets. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. 
That's our battle cry. We find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as Certified Fresh, with that uh, delicious logo, that IP they have there. We shoot usually about 85% and above. And what we will do is bring that movie down to size, discuss some of the uh, flaws that were swept under the rug, some poor acting, poor writing, uh, things the critics got wrong about these so-called fresh films. And then conversely, uh, we'll take a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is rotten, one of those nasty green splotches, usually about 30% and below, and we'll do just as you would imagine. Find the positive merit in it, celebrate the under-celebrated performances, writing, direction, cinematography, what have you, all in an attempt to show that uh, this shit is subjective, you can be as over the moon about anything as you want to be, or as negative about something if you want to be, and also that Rotten Tomatoes does not tell the whole story. That all comprises the first portion of our podcast, the first half, which we call Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if our listeners want to know how we really feel about the movies we're discussing, they just have to hang around till the second half. That's correct. The second half of the show, aptly titled Real Talk, is where we stop pretending according to the tomato meter score, and we just expand on our actual true feelings. This is particularly exciting this time because longtime listeners have heard Alex deride Avatar time and again. <laughs> and just any time that he wants to talk about a movie that was a, a flash in the pan and amounted to nothing in the long run, he'll go to Avatar. And I always found myself in the position of having to defend Avatar, even though I hadn't seen that movie since it came out. <laughs> and so now finally we both rewatched it and I am very curious to see if Alex's kind of a negative opinion or negative memories of Avatar hold up and I'm sure he's curious to see if I'm actually going to be on Avatar's side or not once we get to real talking so we'll find that out um, on the second half of the show along with uh, the audience Yes, and Avatar has a standing on Rotten Tomatoes of 81%, so not quite in our traditional wheelhouse, but as Julio mentioned, this is coming to us via patron request, and as we've said countless times, you patrons, you tell us what to do. Your demands will be met by us. So in this case, we're bending our rules a little bit to make sure Avatar is officially entered in to Contrarian's canon. Julio, who threw this our way? Who brought this across our desk? This was demanded by one Jamie Russell, who said, look, it's December. And uh, the next Avatar movie is finally coming out next December. At least that's the, the current schedule. Uh, I'm sure if COVID has anything to say about it, it will. But mm. right now, they say that... I, I think the plan is to release the subsequent Avatar movies each December. I, I think they did that with Lord of the Rings um, once upon a time. Uh, so why not close the year 2021, our last episode of 2021, our last December episode? Why not cover avatar uh, on it and I, I really how can you argue against that alex and also jamie's literally paying us to do it so <laughs> it's a fair point it would be poor uh, form to say no you know what we don't want to yeah it'd be a horrible customer experience for us to do that uh <laughs> how to how did you watch this did you watch this on disney plus also disney plus even though i uh, i own avatar uh courtesy of my wife merging her movie collection with mine when we got married so we we sat down last night to watch it and she's like are we doing uh, the dvd or are we doing disney plus i'm like disney plus is easier we just push yes. a button i don't have to like insert the disc and then flip the disc halfway through the movie god you're such a wiener i don't think it's a two-sided but that was instantly what i thought yeah that definitely sounds like uh, julio and the the generation of 
anti-physical media. Uh, I do not own this. I watch this on Disney+. Plus. Looks good. HD, I mean, that's one thing we'll say about the movie is that it, it looks good in uh, HD and 3D, however you saw it initially. Um, did you see it in 3D upon its initial release? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I did. I did. I uh, Kind of like an event. You had to. Right. It, it would be like the, <laughs> it was the movie that was claiming to redefine 3D, and so to not watch it in 3D would be almost like, why would I be so confrontational against James Cameron from the There bat? were stories of James Cameron going to showings of it in 2D and spitting at the people in the audience. He was being uh, Denis Villeneuve before Denis Villeneuve was anybody, <laughs> just condemning people for not watching things the proper way, the way he intended. Did you watch this all in one sitting? Sort of. <laughs> So what happened was it was really late at night and uh, we started the movie and so I had to break at the halfway point because uh, oh, Kelly wanted to get comfortable. And so I knew that was code for Kelly's going to go to sleep. And uh, it, but she told me, she's like, you can keep going. And I was, I was pretty tired myself. And I said, well, you know, we can pause and finish in the morning. But then by the time I, you know, we were done rearranging everything on the couch, I was awake again. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to finish it. And then, so I watched the movie, and it's one of those things, without getting too much into real talk, that the, especially the second half, it's just so, like, set-piece heavy that even though I found myself drifting in and out of consciousness, I was still, you know, every time I was fully awake, I'm like, I know exactly what's happening. <laughs> you know, I just missed some explosions. Um, but then this morning I woke up, and I'm like, all right, this is, come on, I'm a professional. I got I to gotta take this seriously. So I watched the second half of the movie again so I could take proper notes and uh, and really, really give you the back and forth that I think you and our listeners have come to expect from us. <laughs> so I watched it in one sitting, but really, to do it proper justice, I watched it in one and a half sittings. Hey, you still did better than me. I needed, uh, I watched this in, I think, four sittings. I kept having to take breaks. I was just like, Jesus this is Christ, just, Alex. dude, it, it was, it was rough. I mean, the, the visuals would carry me through, but as we'll discuss here shortly, the, the dialogue and just the plot, it was so draining. And, um, the whole time I was just like, man, this would be okay if I was at animal kingdom, uh, at avatar land there and actually seeing the floating mountains. Cause that's, that's cool. That's fun. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a it was a rough watch. I, I can't remember the last movie where I had to take as many breaks as I did on this one. So, oh, I, I remember mine. <laughs> what like, was that? No holds barred. No holds barred. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, that movie's not even two hours, and I want to say it took me four hours to get through it. <laughs> All right, well, let's get to it. Julio, eighty-one percent on Rotten Tomatoes, an Academy Award darling, made a lot of money. Released on December eighteenth of 2009 it's currently december 19th of 2021 so we almost timed this perfectly and as mentioned a box office sensation grossing nearly three billion dollars that's billion with a b as in boy a budget of about 250 million this note here says uh, an additional nine million for the re-release when was the re-release was it recent because i know that after Avengers Endgame surpassed it. There was sometime later, maybe a year later, something happened, and then they're like, "Oh, Avatar is ahead again." So that might have been it. Oh, okay. Why not? Eighty-one percent 
we'll get to all the uh, accolades and nominations in the second portion. So let's just stick now to the the critics on Rotten Tomatoes, those certified uh, critics, the recognized body of uh, critique. What were they saying about James Cameron's masterpiece? All right, some fresh quotes from the Tomato Meter, starting with Steve Blodrowski from Cinefantastique, who says, Avatar is an enormously entertaining piece of screen spectacle that goes a long way toward redeeming the somewhat debased concept of a Hollywood blockbuster. <laughs> what had debased the Hollywood blockbuster uh, around that time? What is he talking about? Maybe he was already bitter at the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He was already mad that they were... <laughs> Way before he could <laughs> see it coming. Opening the floodgates, yeah. <laughs> uh, Tom Howard from FHM UK says, It's 100% genuinely, undeniably, categorically, without a doubt, unlike anything you've ever seen before. And if you like graphics and special effects and stuff that's totally new, you'll love it. Tom Howard hasn't watched a single movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to list a few, but yeah, you you could just narrow it down to that. The only movie he's ever seen is Avatar. (laughs) Yes. It was unlike anything I've seen before. I walked into this room and they started playing a story on a screen. (laughs) And these blue people popped up. Um, Andy Morris from GQ Magazine UK says, Yes, you're effectively watching a special effects showcase, but no more so than Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. And that was nine hours long. So go and see Avatar on the biggest screen possible. You won't regret it. Or you could just not watch either. Yeah, I'm not even a Lord of the Rings person, but that's got me fired up right there. (laughs) I wonder how Peter Jackson feels about that. He can't hear the the reviews over the sound of his money. (laughs) Uh, Finally, Jackie K. Cooper from JackieKCooper.com says, Staggering, spellbinding, a virtual trip to another world. Cameron has created the best film of the year and maybe of the decade. Alex, <laughs> how do you feel about that <laughs> That ranking? Best film of the year? Best film of the decade? I'm sure you can come up with some contendants. Wasn't 2009 the year Up in the Air came out? So go ahead and fuck yourself on that one. <laughs> and while we're on this discussion, we'll just go ahead and get into it. Avatar, best picture, best director, best art direction, best cinematography, best film editing, best original score, best sound editing, best sound mixing, best visual effects. All the nominations they received from the Academy Awards uh, for the 82nd annual Academy Awards ceremony. They took home two best cinematography and art direction elsewhere, you know, just dominated the award season and rightfully so in a lot of aspects of the uh, visual effects. Let's save the the lead into this and kind of the the mythos and the, the rumors that abound for a, a literal decade before this was released. We'll talk about that in the second half. Let's just get to it. Julio, did that wrap up your reviews? Did you have anything else you wanted to give us? Oh no, that's that's it. That's enough table setting. I think that we can we can travel to Pandora now. <laughs> Heading off to Pandora, setting sail. It is the year twenty one fifty four. Humans have uh, depleted Earth's natural resources following President Trump's ninth <laughs> uh, stint in office. What is that called? Uh, term. That's the phrase I was looking for. <laughs> Humans have depleted Earth's natural resources, leading to a severe energy crisis. The Resources Development Administration, the RDA, not Rafael dos Anjos, uh, mines a valuable mineral called unobtainium. I'm going to repeat that. Mines a valuable <laughs> mineral called unobtainium. 
Do you think that's just a, a first draft thing that never got corrected? Dude, right? Like it's one of those um, search and replaces. Yeah. That <laughs> he just forgot. You know, James Cameron's writing the script. And he's really frantically. He's like, "Fuck it, I can't think of something. Just unobtainium, and we'll come back and fix it later." And then they got to set, and it was still in there. And he's like, "You know what? Fuck it. No one's going to care in ten years anyway." Uh, on Pandora, a densely forested, habitable moon orbiting Polyphemus, a fictional gas planet in the Alpha Cent. Centiar star system. Pandora, whose atmosphere is poisonous to humans, is inhabited by the Navi, a species of 10-foot-tall, blue-skinned sapien humanoids that live in harmony with nature and worship a mother goddess named Iwa. Julio, it's kind of hard to watch movies like this where one of the characters is so stubborn and won't wear a mask despite the (laughs) atmosphere being toxic to their being. Uh, to explore Pandora's biosphere, scientists use Navi-human hybrids called avatars, operated by genetically matched humans. Jake Sully, returning star Sam Worthington, a paraplegic former Marine who replaces his deceased identical twin brother as an operator of one. Dr. Grace Augustine, my girl Sigourney Weaver, another contrarian's legend, head of the avatar program, considers Sully an ad- inadequate replacement, but accepts his assignment as a bodyguard. While escorting Weaver the- has watched Getting Square. She's like, this guy? The guy from Getting Square? No. This is not an adequate replacement. Get me Michael Bain. <laughs> While escorting the avatars of Grace and fellow scientist Dr. Norm Spellman, played by not DJ Qualls, Jake's <laughs> avatar is attacked by a th- Thanator? And flees into the forest where he is rescued by Natiri, Zoe Saldana, a female Navi, witnessing an auspicious sign. She takes him to her clan. Natiri's mother, Moat, the clan's spiritual leader, orders her daughter to initiate Jake into their society. Papyrus. Avatar hits the screen. The subtitles are Papyrus. Dude, I, couldn't stop I fucking laughing. lost my mind. That, that was something I did not remember about this at all. So when they're speaking Navi... Uh, for those of you who don't know, we used it as the intro for this episode, and you know we'll link off to it from our Twitter account, but there was an SNL skit several years ago with Ryan Gosling. It was one of those short films where he's a man who's haunted by the fact that the logo for Avatar was in the papyrus font, and he wants to like find the graphic designer that did it, and it's uh, one of Gosling's more finer hours. It's really funny. So once you've seen that, you can't unsee the Avatar logo. So compounding that is the fact that when they speak Navi, the subtitles are this horrendous shade of yellow and also in Papyrus. It's <laughs> It makes for an entertaining viewing. But just thinking about Zoe Saldana, God, she is so gorgeous. But she's got Avatar money and MCU money. She has to be one of those people that lights cigars with a, hundred, a flaming $100 bill. <laughs> That's... I don't know. I, I would like to think that she is she's remained humble because she oh, knows yeah. at any point people can point at the losers and be like, you were also in that one. So <laughs> we know your secrets. You were in the terminal. You were one of the forgettable <laughs> characters in that movie. Uh, of course, with both Avatar and MCU, they have one of the most gorgeous working actresses. And they're like, all right, just cover her in shit so no one can see her. Uh, <laughs> I know this was even Gamora worse. Birthed a, well, with Gamora, they birthed a whole new kink with uh, Zoe Saldana. <laughs> and here, yeah, you, you, you only know it's her because you see the name attached to it. Yeah, she's uh, 
I was getting more amusement from imagining Zoe Saldana in, like, in the mocap suit, just kind of crouching and hissing. <laughs> I mean, she's had to do that, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's part of the process. And uh, I guess the problem of knowing, having watched so many movies and just knowing so much about the behind the scenes stuff, you know, now we all do that because we all watch the all the, the the special features on DVDs or the the promotional material. I mean, the uh, the Hollywood promotional machine and Cameron is part of it too because obviously he's provided access to people to see how the sausage is made but the problem with that is that it it's very hard for anyone I think to just watch a movie and really be immersed in the the magic of the filmmaking because we know how this is made and we know that these blue aliens are really actors that were wearing funky suits with dots on them and that they were looking really silly when they were going through the motions of what needs to happen so that we can get this on screen. And I found that very distracting in this particular instance, watching Avatar, because I I became Alex Mattis. I was watching that and I was like, this is not real. None of this is real. None of this matters. <laughs> Zoe Zeldana probably looked really silly, acting like a, like a giant cat. <laughs> Sam Worthington... It's like, how do you make him less interesting and more bland? Oh, just turn him into a blue thing, a blue alien. It, it, I was just uh, uh, distracted by how much I knew of what was behind the curtain. And mm-hmm. I couldn't really get into it. I, I I think that Avatar is probably a movie that works better if you're like that dude that we quoted uh, uh, a little bit ago. some Somebody who's never watched a movie before. And so he can just let this blow his mind. You can show it to a toddler and they can get lost in the 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 pretense. They can truly buy that Pandora's a real place. Yeah. <laughs> and there's those animals are real and that everything makes sense. But I unfortunately... I. I'm at the point where the, the the downside of having watched so many movies it starts to affect me, and I just I don't have that sense of wonder watching Avatar. I'm just like, man, he was really going for it with all those special effects, but that's that's it. I, I'm guessing you have a similar experience. Yeah, I mean, this movie starts and almost immediately it's like, well, here's this, the visual effects. Like when they get off the the ship, when they get to Pandora, it's like none of this is real. It's like <laughs> half of those people in that shot aren't even real. Some more think that it's not real. <laughs> there could be a serious argument made for that. And uh, <laughs> when they get into the lab and like all the floating screens and stuff, it's it's so hypocritical, I guess. Because I, if this was a video game and I was walking through this environment, I'd be like, "This is awesome," but that's what that's supposed to be. With the, this movie, I'm like, eh. If you're gonna do this, just animate a movie or have the whole thing be CG. Don't, you know, piss on my boots and tell me it's raining type thing. I know you have real people in this, but none of this shit's real. And uh, what I did appreciate though was the the prosthetic legs for Jake Sully, Sam Worthington. Those were real. He basically sat in that wheelchair to where you know his waist, his leg, his real legs were like hidden in the bottom compartment. And then they just had these prosthetics on there. It's like, why didn't you, you could just do that with the whole movie? Just paint these people blue and put them on stilts. And there you go. That would be all inspired. Find real floating mountains and shoot the movie in them. <laughs> well, I mean, a little bit of, of digital trickery never hurt anybody, right? I mean, I I no. do not expect them to to actually cut Gary Sinise's uh, legs off in Forrest Gump. You know, just (laughs) give him blue stockings and then digital. So you can do the same with the mountains. You know, just 
paint the bottom half of the mountains blue and then just chrome it out. I know it's a lot more work, but you know what, James Cameron, if you want my respect. <laughs> he's like, you know, putting sunscreen on and he's got the zinc on his nose and he's just like got one paintbrush and he's just sideswiping the fucking Rocky Mountains or something. It's like, yeah, this will take about six months, but we'll get there. Uh, and like imagine West Studi painted blue on stilts like that that's that's Love all it. I want out of life I just now realized that was West Studi Sagat <laughs> he moved up in the ranks this was yeah it, on his march to getting his lifetime achievement academy award so you know he he was the leader of Pandora and he also was uh in deep with bison to change the currency <laughs> of the earth so he could do he it went, all uh, he went from being in a movie based in a video game to being in a movie that is a video game. Just <laughs> <laughs> evolution. Um, Alex, did you geek out as I did when, uh, man, he's in this movie for like maybe two minutes, but uh, when uh, Soli is arriving in Pandora, the man in charge, the sergeant, who's like getting them off the, the ship, did you recognize Jason Statham's buddy from Homefront? No. Is that who that was? Yep. <laughs> Amazing. I was hoping that he would have a bigger role, but unfortunately, he uh, he's their drill sergeant or whatever just for that scene. And then, you know, then we're introduced to Stephen Lang, and that's it. That He takes over as the, as the big uh, military asshole. But for a moment, you know, the guy, I, I wish I remember his name, but he's, he's his friend from uh, Homefront. Yeah, Stephen Lang, the... Man, if there was a MAGA character ever in a movie, it's definitely him in this. Yep. Big MAGA energy. So the idea is basically that Sigourney Weaver, Grace, and her team are there to study this planet, and they know it better than anyone. They speak Navi. They they are there because they think they can make change, and you know this could be a potentially inhabitable planet. Whereas the military presence that's there, headed by suits like Giovanni Ribisi, are there to just mine this mineral they're looking for, unobtainium. So somewhere in this is supposed to be some like fucking commentary on the Iraq War or some shit, and it's just like, dude, I've seen Pocahontas. You're not, you know, showing me anything new. Um, but there's these internal struggling forces at hand, and at the the core of this, the nucleus is Jake Sully, who. As you know, becomes his avatar as a member of the Navi. He has his legs back, so he's so excited the idea of this, and as we'll get into in just a moment here, becomes a member of the Navi of their tribe and learns their ways and learns that hey, this is not a bad way of living. And Grace is there to study this and help with this, and you know, further these developments and these relationships, and who knows where it could lead. Meanwhile, Stephen Lang, uh, Colonel Miles Courtrich is wanting Jake to get in there to, you know, tell me everything about them, tell me what they have to defend themselves with so we can get in and just wipe these fuckers out. And if you do this for me, I'll get you your legs back. So begins the internal struggle of Sam Worthington of (laughs) what do I do here? And so begins the very, very external struggle of the audience watching Sam Worthington trying to act. (laughs) It's a it's a real conflict, Alex, because he has to decide if he if he loves what does he love more, the idea of having long blue legs, or the idea of getting back his his regular human legs. That's what drama is all about. Uh, 
before I, I there's there's so many big players here uh but i guess i i want to start with giovanni rubisi because yes we've we've had him on the show before he was in that thing you do where he i mean part of the the comedy of that performance in that movie is that his character just gets gets pushed to the side and is replaced by tom everett scott now here the I'm going to say unintentional comedy of it all is that uh, he seems to be trying to play a bad guy, like a corrupt businessman, a corporate mm. guy. and uh, Big dickhead type. Yeah, but it's still Giovanni Ribisi, so it's hard to take him seriously. Well, and he's so he's Giovanni Ribisi. There's the part where, like, he wants to show Jake Sully or Grace or somebody, you know, what he's looking for, the the, the home tree. And he's trying to navigate this like computer to do it. And he's like, I can't do it. Can someone? And so he, he like has this guy come up and he's swiping through. He's like, no, 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 pack. Jesus Christ. And it's one of those things of it's so small. and But he's so funny and charming doing it that it's like, I'm not mad at this guy. Like, I don't dislike him. Even though they try to do everything they can to make him like a douchebag. Like, he's... You know he's got his sleeves rolled up, and he has a he. His the first shot of him we see is he's got his putter with his, uh, you know his coffee mug, and he's practicing his short game, and it's okay. I it's still Giovanni Ribisi. <laughs> yep, it's like it's like a little boy trying to to you know play like he's an adult. <laughs> like I'm wearing a suit. Um, he also, if anything, I felt pity for him. Because he gets saddled out of everybody, I think it's saddled with the most exposition, and it's just—I think that some people can deliver exposition, like own it, and make it sound somewhat natural, to where you forget that it's exposition. You forget that the movie just stops so somebody can explain to you what's happening in the movie. Mm-hmm. I, I usually think of a Christopher Lloyd in Back to the Future. He yeah. explains a lot in that movie, but you're just all in because he's just so good at it. Um, I don't think Giovanni Ruiz's talents uh, lay on that side. And here, just from the beginning, when we first meet him, and he has to explain what an Obtanium is, I just feel bad for him. I was like, oh, man, you drew the short straw. You drew the unobtainium straw. And he, he brings uh, Sigourney Weaver to his office. He's like, come here, come here. Listen, this is why we're here, unobtainium. And he just goes on, delivers a full page of just facts. He has to know. He's been around for a while. He has to know that he got fucked with that speech. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Jake Sully, Sam Worthington gets to give uh, Braveheart attempts at, at inspiring people. And Giovanni Ribisi gets stuck explaining what Unobtainium is and uh, why his investors are going to be mad if they don't get enough of it. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, high up on the list of people that got screwed by Avatar, the, the production, uh, is Giovanni Ribisi. Uh and and right below him is I think Sigourney Weaver, who is I'm sure you would agree, Dude. so much better than this movie. Dude, <laughs> this movie the, is the, so beneath her. Yes, and the dialogue they give her and her yep. oh, it's it's bad. I think I have a line later on in this where I wrote it down. There's one part where like, fuck, they like pull her out. They're like, they're getting too close to the... It's like when they're attacking Home Tree or whatever, and they pull her out, and it's a slow-motion shot of her, like, fighting against these guards, and she's like, you murderer! And uh, it's just like, oh... It was one of those things where I felt bad for her, you know, and she's sitting on a big pile of cash from this, but at the same time, it's like, <laughs> having just watched The Ice Storm and, you know, movie... Uh, even Dave, I was thinking about that when I was watching this, how good she is in that. It's mm-hmm. like, James Cameron, you betray the parts that you have here, my man. 
Yeah, I think that uh, the the problem, and it happens not just to her, but I think it's the most noticeable with her, is that this movie, I guess, is it's what PG thirteen or is it PG? Uh, it's PG thirteen. They, I think, they have one fuck in here. Do they? Why wouldn't they give it to uh, Sigourney Weaver? Because she clearly wants to motherfuck everybody in this movie. <laughs> and they keep sanitizing her dialogue. Uh, it was. Oh, just... man, do not Google Avatar fuck, because I was trying to see if you said that. And... <laughs> uh, I should have written more of her, of her dialogue. I have one line from later on that just uh, made me roll my eyes. But uh, overall, I just felt that she... Because they sell it to you as this no-nonsense scientist that's just fed up with the bureaucracy and has no time for this marine. Uh, you you can feel her building up to cursing, and then she mm-hmm. can't because <laughs> the writing won't allow her. So what does she call? Um, she calls Rubisi something. I'm like, what are you, nine? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, you goofball. <laughs> it just doesn't work. She is She's a good actress that clearly... Was not. Uh, this is not because she's not talented. It's just because the the movie doesn't know what to do with her, how to employ her talent. You would think James Cameron was able to get around that. He could give her one motherfuck. I mean, Kate Winslet is naked in Titanic, and he's still got a PG thirteen rating, so he knows his way around these things. <laughs> just cut away before she finishes the the word, and then you just know. Uh, so we need to round out our main players here, and not DJ Qualls, Doctor Norm Spellman, uh, Joel David Moore. Uh, you want to talk about guy a guy that was in a lose-lose situation. We'll get to the specific line here in a little bit, but he's the bad guy from Grandma's Boy. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to take this dude seriously in any situation. He's supposed to be this learned professor or doctor, and he's going to make the connection. And he's, he's JP from Grandma's Boy. And then when they'd make the first link or the first scurry out as the, the avatars, He's wearing a baseball cap <laughs> as one of the blue people. As a member of the Navi, he's got this baseball cap on that, you know, says go socks or some shit. And <laughs> ridiculous. So Jake gets a little too um, ex- He's a very excitable young man in this situation. He's not because he hasn't been through the training. He doesn't know the dangers of everything, the elements. Gets excited, wanders off on his own uh, in the body of his avatar, and as we mentioned, he comes across um, Natiri, who saves him from some of the the wildlife of the the forest there. And it becomes clear that the spirits, these little fucking jellyfish or (laughs) butterflies or whatever, like him, and she sees something in him, takes him to the village, you know, the the chief, the head chief, the head of the table, uh, Itukan, West Studi, he's the clan leader, and he's very, you know, dismissive of it. As is um, Moat, the spiritual leader, Natiri's mother, and Suti, Tetsuti, the who's the, the 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 finest warrior that they have to offer. The you know, if you've seen any movie in the '80s based in like a high school or college where you see a bully right away that you know by the end of it is going to have come around and you know befriended the nerd that's definitely this guy here it's uh judd nelson yes yeah yeah yeah. so he's here he's starting to enjoy it the natives don't see it though they don't see what natiri sees they don't really want any part of it um but they agree to let natiri kind of teach him the way and teach him the ways of their village and back in you know the real world the human world jake sully's told you know in three months 
that's how much time you have to, you know, penetrate their lives and their information before we move in. We swoop in and bring death from above. And it, it's basically like an hour long montage of him learning the ways of the Navi, the those really pretty birds they fly and banshees and shit. He's learning and they eventually, you know, you're ready to tame your own banshee type thing. And he's learning more of being in tune with Pandora and the creatures it has and that whole weird uh, phallocentric thing of the, the ponytail that you plug in to the other person's ponytail. It's like a, a docking scenario, tip-to-tip action. and you can, Cameron has to have known how that was going to look, right? He's he's an adult, so <laughs> it's not like he accidentally made it look like, like that's... It looks sexual. And so when you see it happening between uh, Sam Worthington's avatar and uh, Zoe Saldana's avatar, you're like, all right, I mean, it's, it, it's in the middle of arguably, not, not arguably, definitely a love scene. So you're like, all right, that makes sense. But then you see it happen between Sam Worthington or any any of them and uh, the the animals that they ride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then it just it just feels weird. It's how how intimate are you getting with your ride here? Especially once uh, Zoe Zadania explains that uh, those banshees, they only find, they kind of mate for life. You, you Once you connect with one, that's it. He's not going to connect with anybody else. Uh why would you go there? Why? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you won't let Sigourney Weaver say fuck in your movie, but you will have this, I don't know, very sexual way for uh, your protagonist to communicate with the dragon he's going to ride. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't understand. It's It almost made me feel like Cameron was not aware of it looking sexual. And to him, it was just like a cool thing. <laughs> He got he got really excited exploring the themes of uh, uh, these beings' connection to nature and to him. Well, what expresses that connection more than you, literally, physically connecting with nature? <laughs> Except that it looks like you're fucking nature. So maybe don't do it. I've already made the the reference or the joke. I I did not remember from my first viewing that when he meets the villagers, the tribe. They ask him his name, and he says Jake Sully. He just introduces himself formally with his first and last name, and so they assume his name is Jake Sully. Mm-hmm. And so they just say it as one word. That's actually pretty funny. Yeah. So this this movie is is basically it's split in three chunks, right? All of them long. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the the first chunk is it's just introducing us to Jake Sully to the the basically the setup, the gimmick. Oh, he's he can't walk in the real world, but he's going to be able to walk as an avatar. He has his uh, YouTube channel where he he does his little video blogs, I guess, updating people on his adventures. And yeah. That's that's like the whole hour of the movie. Then the second, I don't know if the whole hour, but that's the first chunk of the movie. Second chunk of the movie is him becoming one of the one of becoming a native, going native, mm-hmm. as they say, right? That is what you're talking about. The full montage sequence that never ends where he learns to shoot a bow and arrow and he learns to communicate with the animals and read nature read the tracks along the way he falls in love with uh with Zoe Zeldana as you would kind of feel like if this was a Disney movie there would be a whole song I'm thinking of I'm Beauty and the Beast can you feel the love (laughs) tonight 
Dude, fucking hell. Imagine the alternate timeline where that's like the song for Avatar and you got Elton John at the Oscars performing. Queen <laughs> <laughs> uh, kings and vagabonds. And then behind it, it's Stephen Lang and that big fucking war machine just tearing through the village. <laughs> the close-ups of uh, just uh, Jake Sully and uh, Zoza Danya just like rolling around on the grass and then suddenly they stop. <laughs> they just look at each other. Jesus, um, yeah, uh, and then the 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 third chunk of the movie is just the the climax. It's just like all out war for what feels Chaos. like three hours. Yeah, <laughs> it's a uh, you know everything is exposed, and then the Stephen Lang and Giovanni Ribisi decide to stop waiting for uh, Sam Worthington to get the natives to move peacefully, and instead they're just no, we're just going to bulldoze them out of the way. That's it. It's very simple. It didn't need to be two hours and 40 minutes. <laughs> I think no. we can all agree on that. Because you could cut probably an hour out of this movie if you got rid of all the sweeping nature shots that Cameron has. Which I understand. He wanted to showcase what really mattered to him in this movie, which was the how he was pushing technology forward and the 3D and all that stuff. So in order to do that, you need just so many more establishing shots than you would use on your standard movie. Um, there's that. And then there is what, uh, just kind of to steal some dialogue from Stephen Lang in this movie, let's call it the, the tree-hugging propaganda, which is where uh, the movie stops <laughs> having a plot and it just instead becomes uh, about Zoe Saldana and her tribe teaching Sam Worthington that nature is linked to us and how we need to respect nature and all these things that i agree with but i don't need to sit for an hour just listen to a class about it <laughs> you know i came to watch stephen lang and sam Worthington fight and instead it's just <sighs> yeah i can give you a, a cut of avatar that's an hour and 40 minutes i i don't care enough to do it but i could <laughs> easily easily so he's bonding with Gamora, as we said. He's bonding with Natiri. Uh, Stephen Lang just wants blood. He he has an itchy trigger finger, like you wouldn't believe. He just wants to go in and start killing and, you know, taking what they need by force. Uh, Jake Sully is eventually initiated. He's part of the tribe now. He's part of the Navi, and he wants his woman. He wants to mate <laughs> with Gamora, uh, with Natiri, and he does. And probably the hardest laugh I had in the whole movie, completely unintentional. Is that shot of Jake Sully, Sam Worthington, and that fucking sensory deprivation tank they have him in, where he like wakes up after having sex with her, and he's just like, "What are you doing, Jake?" It's one of those shots of like you know, or you get really drunk and hook up with someone you really shouldn't have, and you wake up next to him in bed. In this case, though, he's having interspecial sex, and so he's kind of like, "You're playing with her heart, man. It'll never work." You're four feet shorter than her. <laughs> uh, but it's funny also because uh, when he wakes up, he's in a great mood. You know, it's like in big uh, after Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks in big. Yes. Yep. <laughs> he's because uh, Sigourney Weaver, you know, he wakes up. He doesn't know uh, that, you know, his blue buddy is actually in danger because this is this mm -hmm. is what happens, right? Like uh, he... They had sex, and then the next morning they are about to get bulldozed by Stephen Lang's machines. And he, because he's awake in his human 
body. He's not even aware that his blue body is in danger. And Zoe Zaldana is trying to wake him up, and he's just passed out because he's not linked. And meanwhile, he's having breakfast with Sigourney Weaver and uh, <laughs> Joel David Moore. And uh, he's, he's just smiling like a guy that just got laid. <laughs> And then he finally connects at the last minute and has to uh, get out of the way. But uh, is it Stephen Lang? That's like you get one piece of local tail, and now you're attached to them. <laughs> yes. Uh, do you think, I, I, as I do, that this movie would move higher in the rankings if instead of getting the second-rate performance from Stephen Lang, you would have gotten a, a true drill sergeant as uh, Arlie Ermy to play the, this character? God fucking bless. It'd be so good. <laughs> What's your major malfunction? <laughs> that wouldn't even be in the movie. That would be like an outtake of him like asking why Sam Worthington is in the movie. <laughs> Can you imagine that final fight? Arlie Ermy with his big robot <laughs> fighting. Those big fucking bushy eyebrows of his. Oh, it would be so good. He wouldn't put up with all that shit, with all the CGI. He'd be like, just let no. me fight Worthington. <laughs> He's just on foot, no mask on, just holding his breath, you know, just swinging wildly. <laughs> Haymakers. So the invasion begins. They're tired of waiting. They're coming in to, you know, wreck shop. Worthington, Jake Sully is able to get dialed in, so he goes to warn the Navi, you know, they're coming. Because it just comes down to, hey, these, these people aren't leaving. It's going to be bad either way. And he goes to warn them, and I don't know if you caught this, um, I'm. I, this is one thing I'm not going to like harp on him for, but it it just was funny to me. He can't yell in an American accent like he's supposed to be American in this yep. movie. He's Australian, right? Yes. Okay. I he, don't, he got square in Australia. That's right. Yeah. Okay. His nationality is Australian. I don't want to say that and he's New Zealand, uh, <laughs> New Zealander, because that could start a potential war um not unlike the navi versus the humans but um he can't yell an american accent when he starts to yell it's just it just struck me as funny i don't know why his australian shines through yeah the humans are coming i'm sure cameron and Worthington would tell you that that is not even an australian accent that's just a a navi accent that he acquires (laughs) when he's linked to his giant blue body there you go or they just really didn't care enough. Like, fuck it. No one's going to care in 10 years anyway. <laughs> so the military just wants to kill him. And this is the speech is given when he has one hour. They tell him, you got one hour to get in there. And we get the overhead shot of, you know, the cameras peering up. It's like a stationary. It's a POV shot of Jake Sully. And Giovanni Rabisi's just in his face, wagging his finger like he's fucking Hulk Hogan in 87. He's <laughs> like, you have one hour to get your girlfriend and everybody out of there. And, and it's certainly not an hour. Like three minutes later, they start bombing the place. <laughs> and yeah, my note says one hour to evacuate. My next note says, well, that certainly wasn't an hour. For a movie that takes its sweet ass time doing everything, you think they could commit to like at least keeping time in flow. So so this is where uh, conveniently, because they unplug him right before they start uh, the attack, right? No, they unplug them during the attack. During the attack, yeah, because he's but he's about to confess to to them what's happening. This is the, the moment that happens mm. in every movie. You know, you know, any movie that has the protagonist uh, have somebody fall in love with him under a pretense. In this case, right, he he seduces Zoe Saldana. She falls in love with him, and his secret is that oh, actually, I was sent to infiltrate your people so we can wipe you out. Uh, yeah, 
you know, the moment is coming in a movie where he's going to have to come clean and it's going to be at the worst possible time. And I just wish that movies like this one, which can afford to take a chance, would just forego with that moment because we all we all expect it. And it wouldn't have been more interesting um, if he just never felt the need to confess because <laughs> mm-hmm. he doesn't have to. He could just tell him, hey, I used to be one of them, so I can tell you exactly what they want without actually having to make them mad at him to begin with by admitting that he's actually a traitor or a spy. And instead, he just gives him information without sullying, haha, sullying his own name. And uh, Zing. that would have made it easier. But instead, he tries to do the right thing, the moral thing, and, and come clean. And so the only thing that that achieves is that now they don't trust him. <laughs> they turn on him. The one advantage he had, he just completely threw it away. And then he gets disconnected. Yeah, they pull him out. It's like the Matrix, you know. Well, in the Matrix, if you get pulled out without proper measures, you die. But uh, they're like, they could die, and they pull him out. And not DJ Qualls punches one of the guards in the face. It made me laugh really hard. Slow motion, part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is the part where uh, Sigourney Weaver's in slow-mo. Murderer! With that awful (laughs) wig and everything. It's it's not good. (laughs) My next note, holy shit, this is bad. Uh, So Jake... Grace and not DJ Qualls go to their holding cell, their prison, whatever. Very underutilized and undercelebrated. Michelle Rodriguez yep. is Trudy, the combat pilot. Come, she's part of their clan. She comes and springs them out. Would you believe uh, she plays a sassy character, Alex? No, oh, no, not at all. It's the Michelle Rodriguez type, and that's why we love her. Yes. So uh, she flies a chopper. They take off because they know up in the mountains there's one other station we can go to where we can get plugged in and we can go help them. So they go to take off in their retreat. Uh, Stephen Lang opens fire on them in the scuffle. Uh, Ripley gets shot, and so now we've got that issue on top of everything. So they're up in the mountain. They plug in. They take, uh, they're take. they trying to save Ripley at the Tree of Souls. Uh, unfortunately, it does not go well, and we lose Sigourney Weaver. Grace is lost due uh, to her wounds. Uh, accumulated in battle now she's supposed to be in the second one right um yeah i mean i'm sure they can bring her back because uh, the they leave the door open to say that she joined nature and i imagine that that means that they can bring her back from nature you know her consciousness leaves her body but she joins the kind of like the collective consciousness of the tree because then later they have a uh, mm. jake sully goes and talks to the tree and he's like hey if Grace is there with you, she can tell you that humans suck. So I imagine they could take it. And then at the end it. of the movie, or at the beginning of Avatar 2, James Cameron is going to fly around the planet in opposite direction so that it spins <laughs> the Earth's rotation backwards in time. <laughs> Why not? If it's in 3D, we'll buy it. Um, this is the line of uh, Sigourney Weaver's line that I wrote down, which is after it's revealed that she's shot. They're, they're flying the chopper away, and they realize that she's shot. And Sam Worthington is like, oh, no, you've been shot. And then she goes, this is going to ruin my whole day. <laughs> Just to know what kind of movie we're in. Yeah. yeah. Get that there. God. So Jake gets plugged in. He goes and rallies the tribe, uh, rallies the troops, so to speak, gives his big speech about... And this up until this point in the movie, it's never been really mentioned that if you just kind of you know go three miles west, there's other villages. So <laughs> they spend the evening going to all the other villages and saying, you know, 
if we're first, you're going to be next. So we got to help this. So everyone bands together. And now it's an actual army versus an army. It's a, It becomes a fair fight. Now, uh, he was, up till a couple scenes ago, he was persona non grata. He was, uh, he was Navi non grata because they, he had revealed himself as a spy. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. Uh, Zoe Zatania pretty much spit on him. She hissed. <laughs> She's like, you suck. Uh, so how does he win their hearts back? He uh, he cheats on his dragon. He's already made it for life with the dragon. Like Zoe Zatanya said, like once you connect to someone, to one of these creatures, that's it for them. They never, they're like penguins. They don't do it again. That's it for life. Well, then he goes looking for a cooler dragon because he, I guess the, the the logic is that these these natives are so easy to impress that all I have to do is show up in the biggest dragon ever and they're gonna forgive me, and they do. <laughs> yeah, there's a name for it. Like the I can't remember now, but whoever is able to tame the the orange the Turuk or some shit, uh-huh. they yeah, yeah, yeah. they have to be honored by the Navi. And now, in a movie that's like you said, that's really long, takes its sweet time with other things. We never even see him tame that dragon. He just flies above it. And it's like, here goes nothing. Cut to black. And then he shows up at the village with the red dragon. Possibly the most <laughs> exciting sequence in the movie. And we don't get to see it. We don't see if Randy the Ram lives or dies. <laughs> and what happened to his original dragon? Is it just now condemned to a lonely life? Because he made no. the mistake of connecting with Sam Worthington. And then Sam Worthington upgraded to a dragon that would let him lead the revolution. Now that's a bummer. It is. So all of the local villagers are rallied together and united in this cause. And so we get like the final human uh, game planning with Sam Worthington, the doctor, uh, Joel David Moore and Michelle Rodriguez. And they're talking about, you know, what their game plan is. And then also the, the military's plan. They're going to go bomb, you know, Pandora to get what they need. And they figure out that they're going to go bomb the Tree of Souls, which is like the, the central point for the Navi, the, their altar, so to speak. And then, written in this script and delivered by Joel David Moore, he says, and I quote, if they get to the Tree of Souls, it's over. There are a few lines in the history of cinema that could be delivered by anybody and still suck. Meryl Streep could not save that line. I felt so bad for that dude trying to, uh, having to say that. And, you know, his delivery doesn't help either. He's, you know, he's like incredulous. He's like, they get to the tree of souls, it's over. I, I've heard pro wrestling promos delivered more believably and with uh, more conviction than that. You can imagine Cameron going, cut. You, you nailed it. And uh, Joel David Moore just stands up silently, goes to his trailer, doesn't talk to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, James Cameron. <laughs> War was declared, is declared, is happening. It's just all-out battle and chaos. You know, the Navi and the other local villagers fighting with um, their dragons and their bow and arrows. Uh, there's actually some pretty sweet action of, like, people in helicopters getting shot with a bow and arrow. It, it looks pretty badass, but it just goes on forever. Yep. And the score, like, really intensifies. And Sute, Tsute, the finest warrior. Judd Nelson. Yes. He gets killed defending the, the, the territory. Uh, he takes out a bunch of dudes in the process, but, you know, bullets are just too much to overcome. He falls to his death. The orchestral music in the background really sounds like the opening of Tropic Thunder, where Ben Stiller falls to his knees and gets shot up. And so I just kept laughing to myself thinking about that. Um, 
at this point, my, my note, uh, my note just says, uh, just make a movie about Native Americans, you coward. It, yeah, it just it's so obvious. It's so uh, on the nose. The comparisons with you know colonialism and uh, the natives. It's what's worse is that I understand that it's a sci-fi movie and he needs to keep things exciting, but I felt that he was giving the Navi too much of a not necessarily an upper hand, but they were putting up a lot much more of a fight than I would have expected. You know what I mean? Like they. They barely have any firepower. Most of them are shooting arrows. They, yes, they're flying dragons, but it's not like the dragons can breathe fire or anything, you know? And and on the other hand, Stephen Lang has an actual army. And somehow yeah. he's not able to... Eventually, he, he he starts getting an advantage. For a while, it feels like it's it's a pretty even fight. And I, I was having a hard time buying it. Yeah. Uh, I was about to say it's appropriate to bring up Stephen Lang, because to me, the funniest part about this is it's just interspecial warfare with different varying degrees of weaponry and you know in the air on foot and <laughs> Stephen Lang's able to spot Jake Sully there he is <laughs> I'm gonna get him <laughs> so then it basically becomes this war is going on but the only people we're supposed to care about are those two and they eventually uh wind up on the ground not before Michelle Rodriguez dies I did not remember that from the uh, same here viewing. I I was I told my wife I'm like does she because you know she says something like I'm sorry Jake and then you see her her ship explode and I was a hundred percent sure that she had somehow ejected before that happened I'm like she's at the end I'm pretty sure she's part of the final group shot no she's not <laughs> yeah she gets shot down pretty dramatically she gets possibly the most noble death in the whole movie because she's the one that did what was right with like no ulterior motives you know even Jake is still getting laid from this he's, he's getting some <laughs> she, on the side she gets to be sassy towards Stephen lang a couple times while she's shooting him up but then eventually he he gets her yeah he does not get jake sully though as they go on the ground they begin their fighting and uh steven lang's able to pin down natiri he kills the uh big horse or whatever she's riding on and so she's trapped so then the battle turns to him and jake this is right by the remote station they have where he's plugged in. So he breaks the window there. So the toxic air is getting in and Jake's fading in and out of his avatar. And his he's basically fading in between his real life and his avatar life as his real human body's dying because he can't breathe. Here's uh, a, here's a pro tip in this scenario, maybe leave your actual body somewhere other than a very exposed <laughs> area of the jungle he's like he why didn't they think to put that shit in a cave or something where it would be more protected it's or just, even up where like because they go high enough it jams all the sensors and transmitters so just put it up there where no one yeah. can fucking find it like, they'll never get this far we're good as it seems Stephen lang's about to inflict the the crucial blow the critical the fatality he's shot by a bow and arrow from gamora from natiri it's pretty awesome you're happy that the bad guy got his comeuppance and then he's trying to power through and get shot again. So he's dead. He's done for. Natiri runs and finds the human Jake Sully and provides him with an oxygen mask that helps wake him up. It's uh, it's very like um, Amazonian. She's manhandling this small man. <laughs> It's pretty hot, not gonna lie. Yeah. <laughs> they both they both look at each other and they realize that maybe they can make this work after all. <laughs> And he says, I see you, as that's their greeting. You can tell that James Cameron was hoping that that would catch on. Oh, dude. But anyway, 
human Sam Worthington no more as he is going to become Jake Sully of the Navi. As the Navi win the day, they win the battle, they chase off the evil humans. But uh, how? Alex, they were losing. I saw it. <laughs> Stephen Lang had the upper hand. They took down Stephen Lang, so it was just like, you know, take out the brain and the whole machine will fall apart. <laughs> well, it, more importantly... Because Giovanni think... Ribisi is not going to suit up and fight. <laughs> no, for, no, he, he gets just... They shackle him. They they just send him back to Earth. <laughs> Here, we want a refund. Here's your Rubisi. Um, no, the 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 thing that probably irritated me the most in in the final act of this movie, in the climax, is that uh, so before the big fight starts, Jake Sully goes to to talk to the Tree of Souls, right? And he's like, I'm not even sure you believe. It's basically him going to church and talking to a god that he's not sure he believes in. He's like, I don't know if you can hear me. And maybe Grace is with you, but uh, this is going to be rough, so we could use a hand. And then uh, Zoe Zatanya comes up behind him and goes, uh, oh, Mother Nature doesn't take sides. She just kind of chills and lets it all happen. Uh, But then it turns out that Mother Nature does take sides because, Mm -hmm. you know, Stephen Lang and his forces has heard you. (laughs) Yes. They release the rhinos and all the other wildlife, and they come, and then just when the the Navi are about to lose the battle, the Mother Nature takes over, which I was like, oh, yeah, Alex, remember how uh, nature uh, thwarted colonialism all those years ago? (laughs) Yeah, thank you, James Cameron, for rewriting history. It just felt disrespectful. if you're going to go and make your movie this sort of allegory for something that happened in the real world, something that's still a hot button, right? Like how many people uh-huh. refuse to celebrate Thanksgiving because, you know, in a way, you're commemorating something that, that led to the the death of so many native people to this continent and so on, right? Well, don't just like give it a coat of blue paint and a happy ending and and make it like, oh well, it's in 3D now, so we can all enjoy it. And I gave it a happy ending. No, that's not that's not how it works. I think that uh it would have been a lot more poignant if the Navi actually lost this fight. Because that's what happens in the real world. And you can still have your final battle between Stephen Lang and, and Sam Worthington, and you can still have uh, Zoe Zatanya save the day. But ultimately, the way that this story ends, logically, is with the bad guys winning. Because that's just the, that's what makes sense to us, because we've our planet has lived through it. And the people with the biggest technology and with the... Uh, less scrupules the ones that play dirty they're, they're the ones that's gonna they're gonna win so it all feels fake by the time that we get to the happy ending here i'm like that's that's not how it would have happened ever because humanity is is it doesn't work that way and then <laughs> i just the idea that some worthington would be naive enough to tell them to tell the navi we have to beat them now so that they don't send more people that's not how it works. They're going to send more people because you're. You think that Giovanni Ribisi is not going to tell everybody what happened and, and encourage people to come and, and you know with even bigger guns and more firepower so they can actually wipe out these people. He knows already. That all he has to do is destroy the Tree of Souls. So next time they're just going to nuke Pandora from the distance and then come in and pick up the remains. It's just the whole thing rubbed me the wrong way. Well, it did give us that shot of a disgruntled Giovanni Ribisi handcuffed being escorted off of Pandora. So I thought that was that was worth it. He looked like uh, a like a little kid that got in trouble. <laughs> Go stand in really the corner. <laughs> but the movie concludes with Jake Sully, his human body and his avatar at the Tree of Souls with the attempted uh exporting of his life from his human vessel to 
uh, you know, as a member of the Navi. And it works because his eyes open. And then Papyrus hits the screen, the, the Avatar logo. <laughs> and this was 12 years ago. We've been hearing about the second and third one for 12 years. And fourth one, I think. I think they're they're doing three. They're making more? <laughs> anyway, that's Avatar. It's been 12 years, 12 long years since I had seen it the first time to the second time. And uh, I'm not sure many of my thoughts have changed. Was this your second time watching it, Julio? Uh, no, my my third, maybe my fourth. God. We'll get into it in real talk, Alex. <laughs> I've experienced this movie quite a bit. All right. Well, you ready to move the conversation along? Let's let's go to real talk. The Smurfs and I grew to understand each other. They shared with me their art of picking Smurf berries, and I shared with them stories of my country's forefathers. Of course, it wasn't long before I fell in love with Smurfette. We're from two different worlds, and yet we spoke the common language of passion. These are the morning announcements. Shh. Papa Smurf was displeased at first. He told Smurfette I wasn't a real Smurf and we could never be happy. But I eventually proved myself to Papa Smurf by picking more Smurf berries than any Smurf had ever Smurfed before. Finally, all was right with the world. But then, a crisis. Clumsy Smurf burst into the Smurf ceremony to say that humans had come to destroy all of Smurfland. And we are back. But before we get into real talk, we're going to do some PP. Patron Pitch this is the part of the show where we let our patrons know what to expect on our patron channel. And we also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. Now, as we've mentioned uh, the last couple episodes, we should have the QVRs for December up. Uh, Alex is going to be doing uh, the horror movie The Devil's Candy, and I will be giving a quick video review of the documentary The Most Hated Family in America. Both were uh, titles supplied to us by patron Ryan, and Ryan actually wanted, he corrected me, I guess after he listened to the, the Muppets movie episode, he's like, hey... The Most Hated Family in America is not directed by the guy who directed Tickled, which is what I said. But it is a documentary that came up because I was talking to Ryan about Tickled. And uh, mm. he suggested this as a as a comparison point because one of my problems with Tickled was that I, I didn't really like the way that that filmmaker kept putting himself in front of the camera. And... Uh, I guess this this filmmaker, the one behind the most hated family in America, he actually, according to Ryan, he does a better job of, I guess, being part of the story. So either way, it tickled was related. <laughs> so you have those quick video reviews on our Patreon channel. Uh, you'll also, by now, you should have our uh, exclusive uh, Patreon episode about Carlitos Way, uh, which was also demanded by... Uh, Jamie Russell, the man behind this Avatar episode. And also by now you'll have access to part one of our Dwayne Johnson and John Cena miniseries that we're working through, the leading into the 10-year anniversary of their historic match at WrestleMania 28, paralleling their movie careers along the way. So first episode, by now you'll see uh, Ran Down, the rundown, and uh, the Marine as well. It was... <laughs> An interesting recording, to say the least. An interesting couple of movies to watch and discuss in addition to where their careers were up until that point. So we've got that as well. And then Julio, as always, we have our After Hours segment. Yes. Contreras After Hours, the spin-off show where we talk to each other about other things that we've watched, we've played, we've read. Um, Alex, what are you bringing to Contrarians After Hours, the last Contrarians After Hours of 2021? My God. 
Um, well, as we talked about, we recently uh, took part in the Other Worlds Film Festival. We provided um, a video podcast for their online portion in which we discussed, we basically just did an episode of our show uh, about Lawnmower Man, keeping in the sci-fi theme. So um, through that, we actually... Uh, had access to some of the other things going on at the film festival. We weren't able to make it in person, but I did. Uh, I was a bit active on the online portion of it. I watched a horror movie that was submitted to the festival titled Wicked Games, uh, which was interesting, very interestingly shot, and um, kind of a paint-by-numbers movie in some aspects, but I'll be talking about that and kind of my reaction and review to it. Uh, and also, are you familiar with Flight of the Navigator, Julio? Uh, I know the name, the title. and I, I saw that they had it as part of their their online offerings. Uh, well, also they had a screening of it. I don't know if it was a 35 millimeter screening, but they had a, a screening. And uh, one of the things that other worlds each year, they usually are able to procure the, a screening of like a, a uh, maybe a cult classic or an older movie, a more celebrated one. And this year it was flight of the navigator, the Disney film from 1986, um, starring Joey Kramer and, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker as well. Uh, it's so fun to see her in those early roles where she still was like happy and you know what if not necessarily that she probably has a happy life but it, it was it was fun it's fun to see old things before she just was Carrie Bradshaw and everything right uh, or you know the bitch like uh, family stone so that led down a rabbit hole of after watching that learning of the lead actor the child involved as most child actors do unfortunately had a troubled uh life basically up until recently and there's a documentary called after the navigator that i watched on tubi following my first screening of flight of the navigator so it went from an innocent disney movie to you know about a four-hour block of (laughs) watching this the documentary is really interesting though in the sense of it details the journey this man went on his life his you know downfall so to speak and some of the issues with addiction and crime that he ran into along the way but also it has people from the movie and it discusses how that movie was like technologically ahead of its time and some of the achievements it made and it's an actual documentary about the film being made but in addition to it it it, you know i used that word parallel just a few minutes ago but it parallels joey kramer's rise and fall along with it so uh, both get my recommendations but i'll explain further why in the uh, after hours segment and on top of all that. The director of Flight of the Navigator was Randall Kleiser. Julio, do you are you familiar with Randall Kleiser at all? The name sounds familiar, so I wonder if he's the guy that directed No Holds Barred. He did not direct No Holds Barred, <laughs> but he did direct uh, a movie that the Contrarians actually, you know, the journey brought you around on, and that is Grease. He was the director of Grease. Ah, and that was uh, enough. He was in attendance at Other Worlds to do like a Q and A following Flight of the Navigator, and our buddy Reed actually got me a, a badge from the festival signed by him. So we can take a picture of that and put it on the Beautiful. patron as well. Yeah, because he knew I was a big fan of Greece. I was just like, holy shit. So that was exciting. So we'll be discussing uh, the um, experience with Other Worlds 2021 and kind of where that led. So you got that to look forward to. Julio, what are you bringing to the table? Uh, before I get into my after hours offering, actually, I it's worth pointing out that, yes, patrons uh, – you already know by by now, but you also got access to that other world's podcast, that uh, video podcast that we did, because that was the thing. It was a 
exclusive for uh, people that were attending the uh, Other Worlds virtual screenings and our patrons. So uh, it's an episode of the show, an episode of the Contrarians on the Lawnmower Man uh, only on video because that's that's what uh, Other Worlds requested. We were happy to do it and it was a quite experience because that's we've never been on video for that long for the show. So you can check that out. You don't need to have seen The Lawnmower Man in order to enjoy it, but as usual, your your experience will be enhanced if you know what we're talking about. Yes. Now, as far as my After Hours contribution, Alex, uh, this is courtesy of a listener and patron of the show, Josh Ragland, who listened to our Hocus Pocus episode a couple months ago where I bemoaned my lack of... Uh, Holiday films, you know, we basically went about how I just, come the holidays, I don't really have a ritual like you do where I watch holiday movies and I have my holiday movies. It's been kind of a running uh, thing going uh, in the contrarians whenever the holidays come around. So he posted a screenshot uh, on our Facebook page of his top 10 Christmas films. And he's like, Julio, just watch these. <laughs> One of them is bound to do something for you. And, uh, and I looked at the list, I'm like, okay, there's 10 here, and I've seen four of them. I'm pretty sure I can knock out the other six before the end of the year. And I have. So that's what I'm going to be talking about, Alex. I, I, I went on a little Christmas journey. Hell yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be telling you about all these uh, Christmas classics that I hadn't seen before, and now I have, thanks to Josh and thanks to, uh, I guess, this show. <laughs> Writers made. of Justice? Did you watch Writers of Justice? Well, not for this. I already seen it. I was trying to knock out things I hadn't seen before. Oh, okay, okay. I forgot you. Watched I watched that Riders also. of Justice before I edited your QVR because I I didn't want to be spoiled. It's. Uh, I think we're actually watching that later today. My dad's over nice. here for his birthday, and I'm going to introduce that to the family. Lillian watched it with me, my sister, but uh, it's added to the Christmas rotation. Good to hear. Uh, all right, so that is that's up on after hours, it's, uh, and you know, there's a lot of stuff on our Patreon channel. One of those things has to be appealing to you and if that's the case go to patreon.com slash contrarian prime check out our tiers and see how much you would like to contribute if you want to contribute and become part of the contrarian supplements one dollar three dollar five dollar ten dollar we have our different tiers that you can commit to the more you pay the more you get but yeah if you're listening to this if you made it this far in our avatar episode you're probably curious about what else we have to offer so just throw us a buck and see if you like what you see like we said we're at this point we're creating a, a multiverse there we're making more and more things that are exclusive to our patron not just cutting room floor stuff and julio and i just jerking each other off about stuff we've watched recently or played or whatnot but also you know you're getting exclusive content and the sense of complete episodes, uh, you know, just powwows about certain movies like Carlito's Way or even, you know, the depending on the success of our miniseries here on the, the Rock and John Cena, uh, maybe committing in the future to more miniseries on our Patreon. So go over, check it out. If there's something you'd like to see, uh, something you'd like us to add, you know, we're always open. We are the contrarians at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on Twitter if you have anything, uh, suggestions, comments, concerns, or just ideas for additions to our uh growing empire here our growing pandora <laughs> so, so julio with all that out of the way i'd like to start off real talk here uh with an article um from forbes online dated december 18th of 2014 this would have been commemorating the five-year mark of avatar being released uh, it's an article i remember reading at the time i, I love the the warning sign. It's not a warning, but it's like a disclaimer. This article is more than seven years old. Uh, <laughs> may, may not be relevant. Dramatization may not have happened. Um, 
I remember reading this when it came out, and it kind of hit the nail on the head in so many ways for kind of my thoughts. So I figured before we even get to the the reviews and obviously delving into our thoughts on it, we'd start off with this. You know I'm passionate about this, not since Shakespeare in Love that I feel the need to bring out other published sources to back me up. So here we go. The headline, five years ago, Avatar grossed $2.7 billion but left no pop culture footprint. This is written by Scott Mendelson, again, on the five-year mark, December 18th, 2014. James Cameron's Avatar defied the skeptics and became the highest-grossing film of all time, but five years later, it is all but forgotten in the pop culture landscape. Today is the fifth anniversary of the theatrical release of James Cameron's 3D action spectacular. Avatar earned rave reviews, went on to become by far the highest-grossing movie of all time, and won several Oscars. I do need to correct myself in the first portion I only attributed to winning... um two Oscars, when in fact it was three. It was Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, and of course, Best Visual Effects. So, sorry, Jimmy Cam, if I threw you <laughs> off there. JC. It then almost immediately vanished from the popular zeitgeist, leaving almost no pop culture impact to speak of. It did not inspire a passionate following or a deluge of multimedia spinoffs that have kept the brand alive over the last five years. Few today will admit to liking it, and overall, its effect on the culture at large is basically non-existent. It came, it crushed all long-term box office records, and vanished without a trace. James Cameron's Avatar was the exact opposite of a sure thing, even with the famously grandiose auteur returning to cinema... 12 years after sailing with Titanic to the top of the box office record books and winning 11 Oscars, the film itself was something of a question mark. Cameron had been teasing the film for a decade, promising something that would, my words, change cinema forever and or make your face melt off and burn a hole through the floor below you. <laughs> for a decade, Avatar was just a notion. It was just something that Cameron was working on in between trips to the bottom of the sea to explore the actual wreckage of the Titanic. Almost nothing was known about the picture until mid-August 2009 when the first teaser dropped, at which point we discovered that the film was basically a variation of the likes of Deep Breath, Fern Gully, Pocahontas, Atlantis, Dances with Wolves, The Last Samurai, and or Battle for Terra. The initial previews were visually spectacular, especially if you saw them on the so-called Avatar Day, when Fox rented out IMAX theaters around the country for a 17-minute sneak preview. I did, and it was the most efficiently run studio event I have ever been to. Sure, the footage looked neat and the 3D looked pretty remarkable for the live-action film, but the giant blue creatures were easy fodder for mockery, and the film's somewhat well-worn plot left us underwhelmed in terms of the whole revolutionizing cinema thing. But we had forgotten the first rule of film punitry. Never bet against James Cameron. Titanic underwent equally dismissive pre-release hand-wringing, but once critics saw the film, well, we all know what happened 17 Decembers ago. Terminator 2 Judgment Day was the first film to cost $100 million and ended up being the third biggest global grocer of all time behind E.T., The Extraterrestrial, and Star Wars at the time. And it was the case for Avatar as well. It didn't have the luxury of being based on a pre-existing property. Sherlock Holmes felt like an easy lock for Christmas box office supremacy. And it was burdened with reports that wildly exaggerated its production and marketing costs so as to be able to crow that 20th Century Fox had spent $500 million on the picture. But Cameron had been down this road before. But if we can carp about the mezzo-mezzo marketing materials, the seeming rush to proclaim Cameron as the Emperor lacking clothes or even Fox's apparent lack of confidence by scheduling Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakwell, a week later as a safety net, we must admit that Fox had a secret weapon, the movie itself. 
The film screened for critics on December 10th, and I attended the second IMAX screening on December 14th, just days before the film's December 18th release date. At that point, the word was out that the film was, to use my sophisticated critical jargon, fucking spectacular. (laughs) Yes, the plot was a little well-worn, and and no, the script wasn't full of quotable Sorkin-slash-Tarantino-esque dialogue, but the 3D was truly eye-popping. Zoe Saldana gave what is still one of the great motion capture performances along with Sam Worthington, and the movie just plain worked like gangbusters. It didn't quite revolutionize cinema as we know it, but the hype was more or less real. But would rave reviews be enough to turn the tide? Heck, King Kong, which opened the same weekend in 2005, actually suffered due to overly rave reviews since it had pundits thinking it would actually challenge Titanic for similar box office and Oscar glory. Fox and company held their breath over the opening weekend. Avatar rode the wave of buzz and weathered a brutal snowstorm to open with $77 million, which was and still is the largest opening weekend of all time for a not-based-on-anything motion picture. But opening weekends are about marketing and pre-release interest. The rest of the theatrical run is generally about the movie. Audiences having being knocked out by what they saw in terms of the 3D, in terms of the visually glorious Pandora, and yes, in terms of the primal indigenous people beat back murderous invaders with the help of turncoat member of the enemy story that explicably referenced a decade of post-9-11 imperialistic warfare. I talk a lot about not giving away the game in the marketing campaign can boost positive word of mouth since it will make the film's real joys appear to be more of a discovery for moviegoers. And Avatar fit that bill. Like Jurassic Park in 1993, no one quite got how visually stunning Avatar was going to look, and quite a few of them came back for seconds. Well, this is where those who grew up in the late 90s following this stuff got a jolt of deja vu. I distinctly remember the excitement in the air as the opening weekend of Titanic gave way to obscenely positive word of mouth leading into the Christmas season, and I honestly felt the same kind of heat this time around. I remember as Avatar went from 24 million Sunday to 16 million single-day grosses for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday thinking out loud, this can't be happening again, can it? He can't have done this twice in a row, right? But history indeed repeated itself as James Cameron's sci-fi 3D opus dropped about 1.5% on its second weekend to earn $75.6 million amazing. over the Christmas weekend. No shit, dude. I always think of Watchmen, how we talked about that movie. It made like $40 million or $50 million its opening weekend, and the next weekend made like two or three. <laughs> Jim, James Cameron doesn't play those games. He ain't about playing no shit. <laughs> and it wasn't that dramatic. I think it went from like... 45 or 49 to 7 million it was it was a dramatic drop off but it's not like it made pen uh, when you hear the percentages that's when it really hits nails at home yeah because when was the last time you heard of any movie dropping less than 10 (laughs) percent you know it's always 20 percent 30 percent 60 percent it's crazy not james cameron baby not avatar not to be outdone, Sherlock Holmes earned $62 million that weekend while Fox's safety net, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakquel, debuted with over $47 million over what is still the single biggest box office weekend on record. Avatar's second weekend gross of $75.1 million was eventually supplanted by The Avengers, uh, $106 million off of a $207 million weekend debut. But even then, that's like a 50% drop-off. Mm-hmm. To your point, I mean. It's still a lot of Missoula, for sure. <laughs> but, but Avatar still holds the record for the biggest gross for weekends 3, 69 million, 4, 50 million, 5, 42 million, 6, 34 million, and 7, 31 million. 
Guess what movie still holds the records for weekends 8, 9, 10, and 11, and 12? Yeah, Titanic, of course. Titanic? Yeah. <laughs> Avatar crossed 1 billion by the end of its third weekend and topped Titanic's 1.8 billion worldwide or what I used to call the Joe DiMaggio 56-game-hitting streak of box office records in just 38 days. It went on to earn $760 million domestically, compared to Titanic's $600 million haul in 1997-98, not counting the 2012 3D reissue. And a stunning $2.7 billion worldwide, topping the, at the time, $1.8 billion worldwide uh, gross of Titanic by 50%. Even five years later, there are only 22 films that have grossed even half of what Avatar's final 760 million domestic uh, cum. Maybe he addresses it, but I, I I think it's fair to point out, especially when he's comparing it to Titanic and all that, that Avatar, I imagine, a big chunk of those tickets were 3D tickets, so you're paying more on average. It's not so even like course, an inflation thing. It's like, yeah, the, the ticket prices are higher. Exactly. So, you know... 10 tickets to Avatar in 3D would make more money than 10 tickets to Titanic back then. So it, it's almost unfair. I understand that the argument is still that, well, if it was not a movie that captured the audience, then nobody would pay for the 3D. It doesn't really yeah. matter. The, the point is that it was still bringing people in. But I, I think it's it's fair to just bring up the fact that, well, it, it also made more money because it was um, tickets were more expensive overall inflation or not even five years later only titanic and the avengers have earned half of avatar's 2.7 billion gross while just 30 films have earned a third of that worldwide avatar is the highest grossing film of all time by such a margin that we may not see anything approach its global cum for a very long time if ever that aged horrendously yet (laughs) (laughs) yet for all intents and purposes the film is all but forgotten It did not become a cultural touchstone in any real sense. Kids don't play Avatar on the playground, nor with the action figures in their homes. There is little, if any, Avatar-themed merchandise in any given store. Again, that aged questionably considering the Disney thing, but we'll get to that here shortly. Most general moviegoers couldn't tell you the name of any single character from the film, nor could they name any of the actors who appeared in it. Even its strong showing at the Oscars hurt the film as the narrative turned into mean and scary James Cameron against weak and helpless Catherine Bigelow, as if the (laughs) former Mrs. James Cameron needed any sympathy votes as she went on to become the first female Best Director winner for The Hurt Locker. Avatar didn't inspire a legion of would-be Avatar ripoffs, save perhaps for Walt Disney's disastrous John Carter. It didn't set the mold for anything that followed, save its use of 3D, which turned the post-conversion tool into a valuable way to boost box office overseas. Yep. As we talk about a lot. If Avatar has any legacy at all, it is by normalizing and or incentivizing studios to release their biggest would-be tent poles with some kind of 3D modification in order to charge more money for its tickets. That's obviously not necessarily a positive thing, as it's led to a few years when seemingly every big film was artistically comp- compromised by a half-hearted or rushed 3D conversion for the sake of a ticket upcharge breach. That less I think than, that we can uh, we can say we're past that. I think yes, we, we very that fortunately wave. we've def- yeah. that wave has crashed and it's the tide has settled. But this was a time period too both you and I were very aware of that going on just due to where we were in yep. our professional lives. That's less of an issue in America, although it remains a driving factor of international box office today. James Cameron wanted to show the world how great 3D could be, and Hollywood responded by showing us how terrible it could be, too. (laughs) Despite a pretty swift case 
of blockbuster backlash, whereby pundits quickly attributed the film's box office success entirely to the 3D effects, I still think it's a... <laughs> Oops. That's, uh, that's the point I was making earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The clairvoyance of Julio here. Despite a pretty swift case of blockbuster backlash, that's a hard one, uh, whereby pundits quickly attributed the film's box office success entirely to the 3D effects, I still think it's a pretty fantastic adventure film. The characters are simple but primal, and the storytelling is lean and efficient even while running nearly three hours. Uh, disagree with that one, brother. Avatar was arguably the right film at the right time with a potent anti-imperialist message that came about just as America was waking up from its post-9-11 stupor and the rest of the world was more than ready to cheer. A film where murderous private armies were violently defeated and driven away by impassioned indigenous people. But it was basically a cinematic footnote not a year later, with no real pop culture footprint beyond its record-setting box office and groundbreaking 3D. What's sadder than that what Avatar was remembered for, very little, is what it wasn't remembered for. The positive lessons of Avatar's success, an original story that resonated on a narrative and socially topical level, with truly eye-popping visuals being delivered by an auteur at the top of his game that touched the entire world for a brief period, were forgotten in favor of everything must be 3D. Avatar was not the first mega blockbuster where Hollywood learned all the wrong lessons. Examples. Nearly every other blockbuster ever made. Uh, <laughs> but considering how big of a deal it was for a brief period of time, it is all the more odd that it exists solely as that 3D movie that made a bunch of money. Aside from arguably cementing IMAX as the go-to destination for the biggest of big blockbuster movies, just over a year after they expanded via the digital IMAX screens, and kickstarting a mad dash for live-action 3D, Avatar didn't really change the industry in any real way, for better or worse, and its seemingly franchise-ready world didn't really go beyond the single initial film. For the moment, Avatar is a footnote in cinematic history. I've seen the film once in IMAX 3D, once on 2D Blu-ray, and I caught the third act on an airplane last year, and I can speak with some authority that the film still holds up. But even with James Cameron swearing that Avatar 2, 3, and 4 will make you shit yourself with your mouth wide open, challenge <laughs> accepted, parentheses, uh, and Walt Disney tentatively planning Avatar Land in various parts of their theme parks, it would seem that the chance for Avatar to be the Star Wars of its generation, or really the anything of its generation, came and went five years ago. That's okay, of course. A great blockbuster movie can be just a great blockbuster movie without capturing the lunchbox market. And considering how often James Cameron actually lives up to his own hype, I'm incredibly excited to see what he has in store for our next trips to Pandora. The odd thing is that despite the fact that Avatar grossed $2.7 billion worldwide, I might be the only one who still cares. <laughs> that again by Scott Mendelson, uh, written for Forbes website on December 18th of 2014. So Julio, first of all, thank you for indulging me and allowing me to get through that. I think it says a lot of things about points that you and I are probably going to hit. Uh, but yes, some of that did not age correctly as, thank God, we're past the 3D craze, which you can't argue that movie definitely, he was correct in that it kickstarted that, uh, where everything must be 3D because it can make us more money type of thing. But again, missing the point of he made this movie with the intention of it being 3D. It's not just something that he did after the fact. And of course, you know, Marvel came in, shook the whole game up and has rewritten film history uh, <laughs> in a much more dangerous way than James Cameron ever could have. <laughs> And uh, 
<laughs> now holds many of the box office records. And some of the things he did poke at came to fruition. We're allegedly getting Avatar 2 next year. There is the Avatar Land at Disney's Animal Kingdom, which is fantastic. I'll give a quick review of that before we get out of here. Um, but there is a lot of merit even seven years later after that article was written, there's still a lot of merit to what is being said in this. And I need to make this clear before we take it in your direction, before we get into any of the reviews, anything like that. I don't hold a grudge and I'm not bitter towards Avatar. A lot of times, like when I try to talk to my dad about this movie in particular, he always thinks like you're, you know, you don't like it because it made a lot of money. I'm like, no, that's not what I'm trying to say. It's fascinating in that it made that much money and no one, it's not a movie people really care about. I have I cannot wait until the day where I meet someone who tells me their favorite movie is Avatar, just so I can dive into the psyche of that and like why like how, and that's not a bad thing. Your favorite movie can be whatever the fuck you want it to be, um, but there's never really been anything like this that came and made as big of a momentary impact as it did, and it's not like you know my things with the Marvel's movies aside and shit when that first trailer for Avatar drops it ain't gonna be like when the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer dropped it's not gonna be like when the Endgame trailer (laughs) dropped or for me 10 years ago it's not gonna be like you know when the Dark Knight Rises trailer dropped or shit man not just superhero movies like the first time we saw the trailer for the master we're like holy shit what is this gonna be it's it's just not that type of thing and that makes it very fascinating there are things about this movie I really enjoy that we'll get to. So uh, I just wanted to set the table with that, Julio, so take us in whatever direction you want to. Oh, dude, I have so many things to say uh, in uh, pushing back on some things, but I want it before it slips out of my mind. I just realized that we opened 2021 with James Cameron because our first episode in January was Titanic, and we're closing 2021 with James Cameron. God bless. Doesn't that seem like a fucking lifetime ago? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Trump was still president when we recorded the Titanic episode. <laughs> I say let's let's get the quotes out of the way before I start. Uh, let's get these like fuckers out of here. The bear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So some negative quotes from the Tomato Meter. Uh, Julie and Brandy from Autostraddle say five hundred million dollars wasted. <laughs> I don't think so. Well, despite. If there's one thing that we could take away from that long fucking tome I just went through, that is not true at all. (laughs) Ed Koch from The Atlantic says, In my opinion, Avatar has been hyped beyond the point of forgiveness. I mean, at some point, not anymore. Sean Burns from the Philadelphia Weekly says, The movie looks like the kind of gaudy 1970s airbrush painting you'd see on a van owned by your stoner friend who goes to too many Rush concerts. (laughs) In 3D. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, Philip Martin from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette says, A big, dumb movie built to make money, but hardly worthy of serious examination. Avatar isn't only critic-proof, it resists serious criticism. You might as well analyze a beach ball. (laughs) Okay. Disagree. You're not going to write like a really long article like that guy and uh, about a beach ball. (laughs) Why did the beach ball not leave a cultural footprint? (laughs) Here's the thing uh, that I, I I was hoping that this guy would mention it, acknowledge it, uh, and he didn't. And that is that you don't just become, at least not in this day and age, you don't uh, 
become a cultural phenomenon if you don't want to. I mean, I guess, you know, some people go viral and they didn't plan to. But overall, I think that the the main reason why there aren't any children wearing Avatar costumes and all that stuff is because James Cameron didn't want to. You know what I mean? Like, he... Uh, the- he could have capitalized. There was a whole line of like toys and a video game, and he didn't. It's not like a P.T. Anderson movie. It's not like there will be blood. <laughs> he didn't just like drop this movie and say have at it. There was like, and not I'm not faulting him for this. And this is also probably 20th Century Fox getting in there, but it, it was like any action movie. There was a line of toys, video games, uh, you know, mobile shit, and it was like they did with Terminator. But I remember right. getting Terminator toys when I was a kid, and I I remember seeing the Avatar toys when they were out, and just being like, you know, always fully stocked. For any wrestling fans out there, they were the Doctor Death of toys at that time because they were always on the shelf everywhere. Um, yeah, but there was no sequel, and that's the main thing. You know, it's like it it just he let it die. He let the hype die because he doesn't care. He's James Cameron. He's like, I'll get to it when I get to it, and. uh a side effect of that, of him making us wait 12, 13 years for Avatar 2, is that interest just wanes. There's okay. no... Yeah, there, I, I'm there's sorry, no, I, mis- I misunderstood what you said. Yeah, I don't think James Cameron cared about it doing right. it. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. Like he, You have to keep people aware because there's so much content these days. And even back then, that I think that... Well, the next shiny thing is going to come over, come along and, and become... Uh, a pop sensation. And so he didn't do what your standard franchise that eventually becomes a thing did. He didn't release sequels. He didn't release TV spinoffs. Well, well, yeah, but even back then, I mean, you know, what's like the biggest thing that you'd point to? You know, Man, Star Wars. But even still, like, you could... <sighs> fucking Terminator, dude. Like, it was almost 10 years between the first and the second one. Yes, and- but the first Terminator didn't you know, launched the franchise. Terminator 2 launched the franchise. Terminator 1 Fair. is is kind of like a cult thing, and then it became a big thing with T2. So he what has are you talking to... About? It, are you telling me the people that say Terminator, like the first Terminator is one of their favorite movies are just pretentious assholes because it's one of mine? <laughs> I know that much. I'll, I'll own it. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Uh, I, I think that if James Cameron had wanted to make this a happening <laughs> more than it was already, he would have he would have released a sequel within two or three years. He would have just kept pumping it out there and getting people excited. You're telling me that right now, yes, if if they drop the Avatar 2 trailer tomorrow, nobody would give a shit. But I am, you know, I would say there's a pretty good chance that by the time that that happens next year, Cameron would have, will have started, you know, getting the wheels spinning. And he's going to hype it up well, to where it well becomes then, an event. What, what do you say to the, the whole thing where, you know, it was Cameron and his production company that, initiated the the deal with Disney in 2011 to build like Pandora there. Like, yeah, but I think that that is that is part of the road to Avatar 2. I mean, I it's I don't think that he wanted it to take this long. I He's I playing that, 4D chess while we're all still playing checkers, is that what you're saying? What did he say? What did the article say? Do not underestimate James Cameron. <laughs> don't bet against James Cameron. He has all the money in the world. He has all the Hollywood clout in the world. He can do whatever he wants. So yeah, he's like, let's get this this little Disney side trip ready while I focus on the movies. Um, and when it finally comes out, I I mean, I don't know that it's gonna be as big as uh, initially, as big as you know whatever the MCU is releasing, but. I think that they're going to make us care again because you, he's he's done it before. 
do you think it can be? And again, this factoring in, it's James Cameron, the man who made T2 and Titanic in the same decade. Yep. We sh- we are lucky to breathe the same air as this man. But <laughs> do you think it can overtake Marvel in any sort of measurable way come next year when you know allegedly when Avatar 2 gets released or do you think things have changed so dramatically in the 12 years since this first one came out that it's doable? Because when I say what I'm trying to get at is we no longer, we live in a society. (laughs) From my vantage point, live in a time where it matters who makes a movie. For people like us, it does. That's why you, me, and Eddie and Reed are trying to coordinate when we're going to go see Licorice Pizza together. Because it's P.T. Anderson. I don't give a fuck who's in the movie. I'm going to go see that. But Mm -hmm. as has been thoroughly exposed, we especially me and my pretentious self account for the a niche of a niche of a niche of the movie going audience in 2021. So part of avatar was yes, it's the spectacle, but it's also from the guy it's from James Cameron. He did Terminator and Titanic. Do you think people will still give a shit enough about that to go see it? And that's specifically more of the movie going public now who's getting younger and younger. I'm just curious. Um, yes. I don't think there's a chance this movie there's no chance this movie bombs. But my question is like will it do anything measurable to the first one just based on how audiences and what draws has changed? I think so. I I I and I don't think that it's because it's James Cameron. I mean it's it's because it's James Cameron uh that it's going to happen because I think that him and he and his team are they know how to play the game. Just if you go by history, yeah, he's going to make a, a movie that's going to become a, a a social happening as far as the people that go watch it yeah i don't know that many of them are going to go because it's james cameron i think that i think a good share of them are going to go because it's from the guy that did avatar and they remember avatar as a movie that they watched in their childhood did, i'm trying to but, make sure the, the question i gave you did it make sense what i was saying yeah yeah like, yeah okay. well, here's the, here's what i think that you're not factoring in uh, it, that's the 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 fomo factor He's going to make it be an event, and we are right now at a point where people will watch it just out of fear of missing out. You don't want to be the person that doesn't watch Avatar, whether Dude, you care was, or not. That was what um, helped Halloween Kills, to me, in my opinion, their box office, was it felt like the first movie that, like, well, I don't want to not see this, because I remember you know, I was telling you so many mm-hmm. people that have never talked to me about Halloween, like, texting me about it, Um and it's easier to cultivate that feeling right now with everything that's going on. And assuming we're all still alive next December, which is, you know, we're <laughs> batting like 50-50 at this point. Yep. Uh, you're exactly right. He could make this feel like the biggest movie to happen since, you know, COVID type thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that people that went to watch Avengers Endgame went to watch Avengers Endgame because they're like, well, I put in 10 years of my life watching these movies. Right, people that go watch Avatar, they're not going to watch Ava- the next Avatar because oh, I watched the first Avatar and I want to know what happens next. It's more like oh shit, we've been waiting. You know, this movie's been in the works for twelve years and everybody's talking about it. And well, of course I'm going to go. You know, I don't want to be the guy that's <laughs> reading all these comments on Twitter and Facebook and TikTok and whatever. And I and I'm out of the loop. That's just that's a reason why people watch movies now. You don't want to be spoiled. You want to get to it before social media just ruins it for you. So I think it's going to be a big thing. Now, whether it actually uh, 
uh, gives the MCU or whatever is trending, you know, around for its money. I think that once again, it's going to depend on whether James Cameron cares and he wants to do that or not. Also, it needs to be good. That's a big thing we left out. Yes, but again, you're going back to the whole, are you betting against James Cameron? I think that, you know, most of his movies... I don't know how you could. Even, you know... Well, I promise we'll eventually get into how we actually feel about Avatar. Uh, <laughs> but even with that, it's not a bad movie. So it, has he made something you actively dislike? Uh, you know, I don't. you're going to groan now, but I still haven't seen True Lies. And I think that's the only one of his movies I haven't seen. True Lies is great. It's So I've heard. And I believe it's great, just based such on a blast. what I know. It's also possibly the biggest... I'm trying to think of anything else that immediately comes to mind. There's no Blu-ray of it. It might be like the the Great White Buffalo of movies that have not been the village uh, converted. <laughs> I was going to say Family Stone. It's up there with the Family Stone as far as great all-time classic cinema uh, ventures that haven't been converted to Blu-ray. Um, so that answers that, though. It's a I mean, you got Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator Two, True Lies, Titanic, and then he did some specials for Disney, and then Avatar. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and then, all those movies I haven't uh, regretted watching. Denotes film that has not yet been released. Avatar 2, 3, 4, and 5 that are <laughs> stated to go 2022, 24, 26, and 28, respectively. We'll see, brother. Dream big. Uh, <laughs> it's fucking James Cameron. <laughs> that's that's the... There's that South Park joke that I've referenced on here before. Mm-hmm. It's basically like the only person that can save society from itself is James Cameron. He's the only person that can go to the bottom of the ocean and bring the bar back up to the level. So, yeah, I'm, I'm on board. You know, um, speaking of 12 years, we, we bemoan that, but it, it's not – he was working on Avatar for almost 20 years before it was released. His first treatment of it was in 94, and, like, originally there was a thought with Fox that they could have been released in – I think it was 20th Century Fox that it could have been released somewhere in the late 90s, maybe 99, um, but when they were just kind of – just like a rough outline of it and kind of projecting what it would what it would cost to look like what he wanted it to look like. It was just way too much at the time. Of course, it still cost a lot 10 years later, but I'm just imagining the alternate universe where we get Avatar with the Lawnmower Man CGI. <laughs> I was about to say that. <laughs> so, Jake Sully is all blocky. Um, before, we get into the, before we get into the actual movie, though, I did want to talk a little bit about the, the, the 3D thing, just so we can get it out of the way, because uh, that's kind of its own thing. And that's something else, another reason why I think that people will go to Avatar 2, because it might, and, and the marketing is going to probably focus on this if it's the case, but it will probably represent the next step as far as movie making technology. And yeah. again, you want to be there for that. You don't want people to tell you how awesome <laughs> the 3D was after the fact. You want to catch it there as early as possible. And that's something that happened with with, with Avatar. And I think that, um, like that article put it, Hollywood took the wrong lesson from it. But I remember watching it and thinking, watching it in 3D and thinking, this is, this is groundbreaking. I mean, this is what we've been waiting for as far as 3D. Because there were other 3D movies before it. Uh, Right? It's not that. Like, shit like uh, Meet the Robinsons and the, um, what's the name of that? Uh, my Bloody Valentine 3D? Dude, you fucking took it out of my mouth. That was, 
I was going to say the first movie I really remember being in 3D because it was when I was learning how to operate a digital projector was My Bloody Valentine, which came out mm-hmm. in January of 2009, so almost a full year before Avatar. So we were already moving that way. And yeah. It's just he came and <laughs> well, he showed people how it was, how it needed to be done, and then they they didn't, didn't listen. do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, dude. I, and I might have I might have told this story on the show before, and if so, to all listeners, I apologize. But uh, the first time that my mother came to visit me here in the states, we took her to uh, the IMAX. This is where I lived in College Station, but we came to Austin to the Bob Bullock. And Bob Bullock, yeah. Yeah, and they were showing um, Superman Returns, right? That's the one with uh, uh, Brendan Routh as Superman. And it was in 3D, but not the whole movie wasn't 3D. It was just one of those things where there were maybe five 3D sequences. In you, so you got you were watching the movie, and then on the bottom right corner, whenever it was time to put on your 3D glasses, they would flash a little icon. And then when that happened, uh, you knew that Freddy's dead, also. The. The really? Nightmare on Elm Street. They did the same thing. It was well for yours. I, I, was it the the clear glasses that we came to know, or was it the red and blue three D glasses? No, it was the clear glasses. They were okay. Yeah, I mean, F- Freddy's Dead was ninety one, so it was fairly antiquated. But yeah, just a sim- similar thing. Uh, I didn't yeah. know that about Superman Returns, though. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had a, a few sequences, and I remember it was the first time I watched something in three D in movie theaters. And uh, whenever you put the glasses on, it was just. The 3D was great. It was really good. It felt like, you know, three-dimensional. And uh, I remember turning to my mom and just going, this is the future of movies. This is what's going to happen. And it's so exciting. And then, of course, years later, 3D started becoming a thing. And it was not as cool (laughs) as when I was watching Superman 3. It was a combination of, one, feeling half-baked like it wasn't that good to begin with but also uh i think that most people have this experience it's i I certainly do which is that the first 10 minutes maybe of a 3d movie you're feeling the 3d and then you get used to it and it stops Uh being special it's just you might as well be watching in in 2d that's why uh, like the muppets 3d and the honey i shrunk the audience and all those 3d special things that you go to like theme parks are like eight minutes long because it's it's cool it's special (laughs) yeah uh, so I remember starting to fall out of love with 3D or thinking, well, if this is the future, it's not as cool as I thought it was going to be. And then Avatar happened and Avatar kind of gave it that boost. I'm like, all right, well, maybe if they do it the way that Cameron is doing it, maybe there is something to it. And even then, because Avatar is a long movie and I, whenever I think of its awesome 3D, I always think of the opening. <laughs> and then as the movie goes on, I remember watching it. I watched it in theaters twice in 3D. And I can never think back to being wowed by the 3D in the big battles at the end. It's always the beginning no. when Jake Sully is waking up and you can see the, the the futuristic space station and all that stuff. So uh, even when you're doing it probably as well as you could back then, it was still not something that would just stick with you for two and a half hours, two hours and 40 minutes. And then, yes, as now it's been documented, <laughs> Hollywood took that idea and ran with it uh, the worst possible way by just doing, uh, you know, retrofitting movies <laughs> into 3D and making shitty 3D the norm, but still charging more for it. And mm-hmm. just the fucking greed from <laughs> studios and exhibitors, just the idea that you would have, if you're a member of the audience, you were kind of screwed into having to watch a 3D showing of a movie 
or you had to wait a couple hours before there was a 2D show available because they wanted you to buy <laughs> the, the 3D yep. tickets, even if you were not interested, that kind of stuff. I mean, I am so glad that it just eventually they got the message. <laughs> People don't care. They don't want it. <laughs> they don't want to pay more for subpar 3D. They probably don't even want to pay more for 3D that's good for about 10 minutes and then you get used to it. So that seems to be gone. But it's sadly the the, the biggest or one of the most noticeable legacies from Avatar is just that it, it sprung that movement or it gave energy to that movement. It, that probably wouldn't have happened if Avatar hadn't been around. And so it's not a positive cultural footprint, <laughs> but, but it did have an effect in the industry. It's mm-hmm. just not a good one. So yeah, I saw it in the theater also. I saw it just once in 3D. Because it seemed like the thing to do. And uh, I remember specifically at night, the night scenes in Pandora looked awesome. Specifically when they're like at the Tree of Souls or uh, the first night where Natiri and Jake Sully are <laughs> hanging out and those like little butterfly things come in. Mm-hmm. The spirits that congregate around him. The way that looked on the 3D was so awesome. So from that whole experiment, the 3D boom i remember avatar and i remember one specific scene in prometheus looking fucking awesome all the other shit i watched i was just like this is completely unnecessary well jackass 3d also but that's because (laughs) paramount funded them to use actual three-dimension cameras when they shot their stuff uh which was funny and it looked great so yes i remember the stir this caused and i remember watching it in the theater and i remember when it was over it's like walking out of the theater, and it was at in the theater in Denton where I worked at, and they were like, how was it? I was like, yeah, it was, it was fine. It looked really good. And that's pretty <laughs> much like how I still feel about it. It's like, yeah, it's it's fine. It looks really good. Um, much like T2, even in the 12 years since, we, we, you know, there's been advances in what we can do with computer-generated imagery in film, and this... This looks still cutting edge, you know, based on every, every with everything that we've seen today. This still looks like holy shit. Um, so I guess that we set the table. So we're going to move on in here to discussing Avatar itself. What little there is to discuss. <laughs> yeah, it's a really long movie, unnecessarily so. You weren't kidding. You could get this movie down to an hour forty-five. Uh, the not problem, but. It took me the second viewing to be more appreciative of the runtime. It doesn't need to be that long, but mm-hmm. what James Cameron wanted to do was take his dick out and make us look at it. He wanted to, <laughs> he wanted to In say, 3D. <laughs> yeah, he wanted to say, look at this shit. Mm-hmm. It, it, this whole movie is that scene in Castaway where Tom Hanks start, uh, creates a fire for the first time, but it's James Cameron <laughs> making this movie. I have created Avatar. <laughs> Look at this. And that's it. The purpose of it is for us to see what he was able to do, which is like, cool, man. And that's something I had a lot more appreciation for this time around. If I was able to create something like this, and I know it wasn't just him. There was a whole team right. of people that tirelessly worked with him. But he was able to pull all these parts together and make this glorious fucking visual feast and so if I was able to do that shit, too, yeah, my movie would be six hours long. I'd say, look at this shit, dude. It's James Franco and Spring Breakers. James Cameron with the cornrows. Look at my shit. Look at this. <laughs> and it's when that's the case, you don't have to be the Terminator. That was the thing with the Terminator was like the visual effects were, holy shit, look at this. 
but they were so few. They were like parceled out throughout the movie. So you need a good plot. And that movie has an incredible plot. Mm-hmm. And like with T2, it's kind of, the plot's a little less, you know, it's not as intricate because we already prepared people for what they're getting into with it. So the plot, you know, you turn it down a little bit, it's still got some interesting aspects to it, but then we can focus more on the visual effects. And then we can focus more on, you know, what we're presenting here as a piece of art. And as, like with Avatar, with T2, as we talked about in that episode with Chaz, those visual effects haven't aged a day either. James Cameron's just on a different level when he does this shit. And when it comes to this, the whole movie is the look at it. Look Mm -hmm. at this. And so when that's the case, am I going to fault him for not writing a very complex or, frankly, interesting movie? Not necessarily. If push comes to shove in a discussion like you and I are having, I'll say, yeah, the plot's really flimsy and we've seen it a million times before. Um, It's literally just dances with wolves uh, (laughs) or Fern Gully or, you know, any of those other movies that were referenced there as the South Park parody said dances with Smurfs. But then if he had made a, a Terminator, this like wildly complex movie with all this, it would be too much. It would <laughs> it would overload the senses. It's like like we talked about with Titanic. They know each other for twelve hours and then they're like wanting to die together. Billy Zane has a gun and is shooting at him. It's like <laughs> this movie doesn't really have much to it. But he knows audiences so well. He plays all the right cards and it's like this is what I'll do here, this is what I'll do here, and the audience will fall for the love story here. All the while, I'm presenting them something that they've never seen with their eyes before, so it'll all come together and work. I don't think he pulled it off as successfully with Avatar because it leaned just a shade too far, a scooch too far into the all the focuses on the look at me part of it. Um, and then the story, the actual plot kind of suffered. And I'm not just even now talking about this flimsy plot. There seemed to be... a I don't know if a lack of effort is fair, but the dialogue is not particularly good. Oh, dude. <laughs> that's, that's putting it mildly. There were, there were some Shyamalan levels of dialogue, bad dialogue in this movie. And that's, uh, he's credited as the sole writer. So uh-huh. yep. <laughs> that's just him. And I'm not going to spend time on Sam Worthington here. We did an episode <laughs> on getting square and I kind of said that I think that guy is an, an an abject fraud and uh, an absolute black hole of charisma. Maybe James Cameron knew that. That's why he made him a Navi for the majority of the movie. He's like, people are just going to want to punch you if they have to look at your face this entire time. I mean, good on him. He was like broke when he made this movie. And of course now he's going to be cashing royalty checks for the rest of his life. So get your paper, man, get the bag. I respect that. But as an actor, I think you fucking suck. And so, okay. I know you don't want to like talk about him anymore, but I'm, I'm going to, uh, begrudgingly defend him a little bit because I don't think he is as bad as as you know as he can be <laughs> I guess I don't know I, I was surprised that I that I was uh, I don't know getting some sort of personality pushing through in his performance I think that you have built it up in my head so much <laughs> that he's <laughs> terrible in Avatar that when I, I started watching him I was like oh, okay you know he's emoting he's <laughs> What I did realize this time around was that he's, I don't know if it was um, intentionally, he's not really given much to work off of. It's, his character's very dry, very straightforward, a smartass, 
mm-hmm. kind of condescending. But aside from that, all the moments that involve him where there's heavy emotion to it, it's the other people in the scene reacting to it, be it Zoe Saldana or man, they did my girl Sigourney Weaver so bad in this movie. Um, or even that uh, JP from Grandma's Boy. He, at no point does Sam Worthington really have to leave any semblance of a comfort zone or just kind of where he is. And yeah, for all the shit I talk, I did come away from this like, okay, he's not that bad in this. The <laughs> I was able to focus more elsewhere and kind of using the lenses we use. So... That's kind of why I didn't want to talk about him because I I didn't have much funny to say because I was just like he's just he's he's fine he's there. Do you are you also on board with me that they made Sigourney Weaver look like an absolute jobber in this movie? <laughs> I don't know if they told her like okay you're gonna act like you're in a 1940s drama and everyone else in this is gonna act like they're in a 2009 sci-fi movie, but. Oh God, she was, and we know Sigourney Weaver is a great actress. Yeah, James Cameron knows that she's a great <laughs> actress, but for whatever reason in this, do you think it was her or the direction she was given? I think it's the script. Guess. I th- I think it's the script. I think that she has some of the worst dialogue in the in the movie, and I I mean maybe we, we we've found that instance where Sigourney Weaver <laughs> met something that she didn't know how to approach and Cameron wasn't really helping her get there and uh, you know when you have the dialogue that she has in this movie there's only so much you can do with it like I said in the first corner I got the feeling that she was constrained by the the PG-13-ness of, <laughs> of the approach to that character you know what I mean like she mm-hmm. she always seemed like she wanted to just cuss and just be a little further out but instead every time that she's going to have an outburst she reverts to this really weak dialogue that i i really should have written down the the terms that she uses whenever she's mad but it's just that you know she comes out she's like where's my cigarette what's wrong with this and it's like that's that doesn't fit this movie it's almost like it's like porn level dialogue and acting (laughs) it's almost like she's playing the character as she's as a parody, right? Like she's making fun of this type of character, but the the rest of the movie uh, doesn't agree with her. So she just kind of stands out. She has one moment that I really liked, and it's when she's dying. <laughs> that sounds so mean. <laughs> but, but you know, he's uh, Jake Sully is carrying her through the forest. She's bleeding out, and they're taking her to the the tree of spirits or whatever, so that they can try to move her soul to to an avatar body. Um, but uh, he's carrying her. She opens her eyes and she sees that he's carrying her through this area that's beautiful and alien. And uh, she says something like, I wish I could take notes or something. But I, the dialogue doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is her look when she opens the eye, her eyes and she sees this landscape and she seems to be in awe of it. And for maybe a second, <laughs> you get this amazing performance that that really underscores her character and just the fact that she is really in love with this with this planet with this nature with these people and uh and then she has to speak and she ruins it <laughs> but you know what i mean like she's a good actress and they it, somehow they found a way to make her one of the weakest moments one of the weakest parts of the movie and it shouldn't be because in a way the 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 role that she plays should be one of the movie's strengths right she's somebody that kind of distrusts uh, Sam Worthington so through her eyes we should learn to to respect him 
but that doesn't really happen. Like she never gets much in the way of a uh, you know development. It's like oh well, she doesn't like him one one scene, and then the next time when he comes back and she he's in with the Navi, now she's cool with him and now she respects him. So she doesn't even get any sort of uh, gradual development where we could at least look past the terrible dialogue and maybe get to see her more as a three dimensional character. It's it's just wrong, and I, I can't even. Obviously, you can tell I can't even pinpoint where it all goes wrong. And maybe it's just because so many things go go wrong that, you know, you can't, like, focus on one. But the one thing that we know is, like you said, she is a good actress. <laughs> so this, this shouldn't be the end result. And to be clear, she's still very hot. She's Sigourney Weaver in that way. So no, no foul on that department. He couldn't screw find that her, up. Did, did you find her attractive as a Navi as well? Uh, no. I'm not into that <laughs> that whole thing. I'll tell you who I think does a good performance. And I I don't know. You kind of joked about it in the first corner. No. Fuck. <laughs> 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 but I, I kind of feel like he knew that this Dude, was... Dude, that screamed of he was on set for four hours. I know he was probably there for more than that. But that that whole thing just, to me, felt like he was just in the clothes he showed up in. He's like, all right, let's get this over with. How do you say this? Unobtainium? <laughs> okay. Jimmy, um, we're unobtainium? That's what we're going with? <laughs> I think I got an early draft of the script. Could I get like the, the current one? Oh, Someone this is it. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I think Zoe Zaldana is actually really good. Out of everybody. And I was talking about it with my wife when we were watching it because I was like I don't know why but I see her I see her character and I buy it I see some Worthington's avatar character and I'm thinking this looks fake not as far as the 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 special effects but just the, the performance eventually we kind of agreed that part of it has to be that well, one that I've seen some Worthington as a human, so in a way I'm making that connection and bringing that image into his performance as an alien. But then also the fact that when he's in, in his avatar form, he's still acting like a human in an alien body. But when Zoe Zaldana is, you know, we only see her as an alien, and she acts like an alien. She's not acting like a, like a human. So the hissing, yeah, her behavior and her appearance seem to be more in sync and so yeah i love the hissing i love the the way that she moves the physicality and the way that you know she has she speaks english in a way that you can tell that it's not her first language every time she gets mad like i buy it (laughs) her emotions are feel genuine so i mean i don't i wouldn't have been campaigning for her to get a nomination for best actress uh especially now all these years later i think that she walks away with uh, a performance that is still that holds up do you disagree? Because <laughs> I, I know you, you kind of took some digs at her performance in Conservative's Corner. No, I think she is good. I think, as we've discussed, as we discussed with our Aladdin episode, I remember in particular, um, much like with voice acting, with mocap, it I can see the naivety and kind of the ignorance of some to think that, well, if you can act, you can act in anything. If you can act, then you can do voice acting. You can do the voice of Aladdin, or you can do the voice of you know Bell or something. It's like really because there's a, a good reason why A-list celebrities usually don't do that because it, it's a different set of skills. There's a different energy you have to bring to it, and like that, there's a different thing with motion capture. And yes, her face is being mapped, 
and we're seeing her reactions. So she still has to act like that. But it seemed, as the kids say, she understood the assignment a bit better with her movement and the way she, as you said, delivers her lines more so than even like God bless his soul, Wes Studi or the actor who played the the tough guy bully. It, it felt like she got it for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. It took me that long to come up with got it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it speaks to her ability as an actress also. And also like even as Gamora, she's really great in that mm-hmm. role. Um, I think, when you look at something like this and the Avengers movies that she's in, it's kind of hard to not feel she's kind of underrated as a performer uh, in the sense of it's clear she can kind of go, she can do straight up acting, but then she can go into these realms that some people historically uh, haven't had the most success at. And even like you said, Sam Worthington in this, uh, it does, there's the mental hurdle of getting over that, you know, uh, cause you see the human form and then, you know, his mm-hmm. Navi, while I wouldn't have campaigned for anything, and like I said, I still stand by that that's kind of ridiculous, that that's kind of where they were trying to go with some things. She's great. The breakdown she has when Home Tree burns down and her dad mm-hmm. dies is really good. It's one of the closest things we come to of a moment of really good acting in this. She's probably the MVP. Uh, Agreed. Depending on where you fall with um, Stephen Lang. <laughs> I was about to say, sorry, Stephen Lang. <laughs> he... He's like the um, the antithesis of what we we're talking about with Sigourney Weaver. Of he's acting in his own movie, but it kind of works for what's going on. That's because nailed it, Alex. Nailed it. <laughs> because at, like no point is anything as and we're talking about Avatar for Christ's sakes. But at no point in this is anything as over the top as Stephen Lang is in his performance. But it kind of works for the context of the movie and it helps in making him stick out as the bad guy. Yeah. I, I mean, I, the first time I saw it, he was the main thing I remembered from it aside from the visuals was how much of a badass he is. I was laughing just kind of thinking of his scenes reenacted with Arlie Ermy in it, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he, uh, a definite front runner for Embry discussion just because you want to talk about a guy who probably knew what, this movie could have potentially been and he knew how many eyeballs were going to be seeing him. So he's like, if there's one thing I do in this life, it makes Colonel miles Quartrich the baddest <laughs> bad man ever in an action movie. So God bless him for that. I really hope it was his idea to have the cup of coffee in his hand while he's destroying the villages and all the shit. His bulldozer. I just imagine I'm like, you know what states still have a mask mandate? Uh, <laughs> Washington or something. It's him going to like a Trader Joe's and just <gasps> holding his breath and just going in to take care of his business and then coming out. <laughs> yeah, he's he's always been memorable for me. And I don't really know him from that many movies. So honestly, if you say Stephen Lang, the first thing I'm going to think of is Avatar. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Just, sorry. I, I don't think he is. I think the the, the man <laughs> he's, says thank he's just you. Just sorry that they uh, that they killed him off, so he won't be back in the next one. As was kind of expected going into this, we we took this onto more of a philosophical level than an actual dissection of the movie. Uh, I think that's probably for those of y'all who have listened to us for any period of time would have expected as well. So closing in here, kind of hitting the last few bullet points. Avatar Land at Animal Kingdom. It's called uh, Pandora: The World of Avatar fucking awesome 
So if you ever get the chance, go see it. There's floating mountains. It's like it's <laughs> ridiculous. I remember just walking around there for like a half hour when I went. And it's again, I'm not an Avatar person, but seeing that like the floating mountains with the waterfalls coming off of them uh, at night, dude. The the ground lights up and like you know I'm a huge Disney World person, but it was one of the more visually impressive areas I've seen at one of their parks uh, at nighttime because it lights up and you hear the different sounds of like the wildlife and stuff and there's light up of those little spirits or whatever the fuck those like jellyfish looking things mm-hmm. and then the ride itself there's two rides in the section of the park there's Avatar Flight of Passage which is a 3D simulator that's what I went on when I was there for Christmas two years ago um, like you get put in this like station and then it's one of those the this helmet comes on that's the 3D glasses and there's this big screen in front of you and it's like you're flying on one of the banshees and you know trying to get away from the RDA and you go underwater at one point, so they're doing all those gimmicks where like the water splashes on you, and the thing nice. you're riding on is is like a roller coaster. It's it's awesome. Like when I remember getting off of that and like telling my family, I was like, okay, Avatar existing and all the annoyances I have with it are justified now because of how awesome <laughs> that ride was. Uh, and then there's the Navi River Journey, which we didn't go on, but that sounds pretty dope. It's a a boat ride attraction through the Cap Seven River, showcasing the native fauna and flora of Pandora including audio animatronics and 3D holograms. So maybe there is a 3D animatronic. Jake Sully, uh, J- Sam Worthington. But then you get close and you're like, oh, God, no, that's just Sam Worthington. How long has he been here? <laughs> Some of it was still like under construction when we were there, but there are places where you can eat. You know, uh, I can never remember. Have you been to any of the Disney parks? Oh, it was a long time ago. I went to Disney World. Um uh, it's it's so like I'm in, sure it's very different now. So, <laughs> well, there's still Mickey Mouse, so in the Cinderella's <laughs> castle, but you know the different places have the gimmick restaurants where you go in and you order like you know the the I don't the fucking Avatar burger, you know the mm-hmm. um, Pizza Planet pizza that type of thing. So there's a few of those. I did bring Julio back a souvenir from there, yep. and my mom was so proud. She bought my dad because it was Christmas too, so we were giving gifts there, like a big thing of blue popcorn uh, <laughs> from the gift shop and. They're, you know, all the labels are customized to look like from Pandora. So it's fun. And if you get a chance, go to it. If it's that versus the fucking Galaxy's Edge, Star Wars, you're going to want to side with Star Wars. But if you ever make it to Animal Kingdom, which I do recommend doing, it's wonderful. And the Avatar Land's great. And I also made the executive decision during this. I went ahead and bought it while we were recording. Um, James Cameron also had a hand in the game that came out at this time for PS3 and Xbox 360. Uh-huh. So I bought it. I'm going to play through it, and we'll do that as like a patron-exclusive thing. Well, I'll update on my progress on James nice. Cameron's Avatar the movie, the game. <laughs> the movie, the game. I hope that the, all the cast came you know, together to... Except Sam Worthington. <laughs> to record a few lines for the, for the game. They can't all be GoldenEye or Pierce Brosnan and everybody came in and said, sure. What it's not like this video game is going to revolutionize that industry or anything. Just put my face on there. <laughs> All right, Julio. So I appreciate again you indulging me here in some of the the depths of discussion we went on with this. So we've talked about this film standing and where you know if the cards fell today, kind of where we feel its place in history is. And it's an important one. 
it comes down to this. What are your thoughts on the movie? Uh, I think that it's... <laughs> I would say it's fine, and that seems ultimately like way too dismissive. It's, it's a, I mean, it's a fun movie. Here's my journey with Avatar, Alex, and I, I kind of said that I was gonna mention it, I guess, at the end of Contrast Corner. But so I've seen it, I can think of at least three times before today. First time I watched it, you know, just on my own, and because I had to watch it, and it was it was good. It was good enough that then I went. To College Station, I was hanging out with uh, with a friend. I'm like, we need to watch Avatar. You need to watch Avatar. And that was around the time that people were calling it the best movie of the year. And then when the movie was over, she looked at me and she's like, that was not the best movie of the year. And I'm like, no, it isn't. But I think that it might be the most entertaining movie of the year. That was how I felt back then. Because I had, you know, watching it in theaters, you you do get that extra. That's, you know, we're talking about it with Fury Road um, not too long ago. Some movies definitely lose something. Not many of them, but some of them lose something once you can't watch them in theaters anymore. Oh, yeah. And, and Avatar definitely qualifies. Not just the 3D aspect, but just the... You get more of an immersive experience when you're watching it. A big screen, surrounded by a bunch of people that are just as excited about it as you are, and all that. Uh, as the years went by, I mean, I just... No, I don't think it's the most entertaining movie of 2009. Uh, but I still think do, that it's Do you remember what your favorite it, it, movie from that year was? Sherlock Holmes. That was your favorite movie of 2009? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I would have to. Probably if I watch it now, like, you know, I've seen more movies from that year, so that might change it. But I, I fucking love that first uh, Guy Ritchie, Sherlock Holmes. The second one sucks. But the, the first one, uh, especially to somebody that's a Sherlock Holmes fan, like, I, I love the, the books. It was uh, it was such a clever take on the character, I thought. And Downey Jr. and Jude Law were really good. And, uh, yeah, uh, it's... Have you seen right it? I can yeah, feel yeah, yeah. I can I, feel the contempt in your eyes. No, 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 no. It's nothing like that. I just I we had never talked about this, so I was kind of surprised by that. That that's fine. Mine's yeah. still up in the air, uh which Oh, up in the air is great. But yeah. uh well, it, it, and also I'm thinking about it from the lens of like what's the most entertaining movie, not necessarily the best one. Cuz up in the air is it's mm. may might be, you know, it's a better movie. But anyway, uh I mentioned that my wife has the DVD, and she's had it probably since it came out. I remember when she was helping me pack, because uh, I was moving out of my first apartment in in Austin. She was helping me pack, and we had like a little DVD player, remote DVD player. I guess I did. <laughs> and uh, she brought the movie, and she we just had it playing there while we were packing. And I just remember having fun with it. It's, it's one of those movies that you can just kind of play in the background, and you don't have to pay attention to everything that happens. You know, and it's not super profound, but when the big parts are coming, you know, to stop and kind of pay attention and just watch the action unfold, and then you can you can go back to packing your boxes while they're talking about all the nature stuff. And then watching it last night, I had this really weird experience, which I somewhat talked about in Contrarian's Corner, which is that I was really tired, and I wasn't particularly looking forward to it. It had been so long since I'd seen it last, and as much as I like to push back whenever you talk shit about Avatar on this show. It's not like I think of it fondly. You know, I, I think of it as a movie that I enjoyed once and then eventually, you know, fell out of love with because I didn't have interest in revisiting it and I've seen so many things that in my mind are better than it in the years since, you know. Uh, so anyway, watching it tired, you know, as you're tired and with all the familiar elements coming, I was writing my notes and kind of just going, it, it felt like a, <laughs> like I was just 
really suffering through it. And then, like I said, I started kind of like dozing off in the second half and having this feeling that it really doesn't matter if I'm dozing off because every time I wake up, I know exactly where we are. I know exactly what happened because there's so much that's devoted to set pieces that ultimately have no much, not much of a plot, right? Yeah. And so... Honestly, when I finished, I was like, man, this is going to go down as far as when I get to the ratings, it's going to go down from whatever I have it to at least, I don't know, two stars. Um, And then I woke up today full of energy, fed the cats, fed the dog. And uh, I was like, all right, I was looking at my notes and like, I I really not going to have much to contribute (laughs) the second half of the movie uh, based on what I have written here. So I started, I I watched the second half again and uh, now fully awake, really giving it my attention. I started getting caught up on it again. And uh, I actually, all those things that I was kind of writing off as superfluous action sequences, they really grabbed me now that I was, (laughs) you know, not falling asleep because I wasn't falling asleep because of the movie. I was falling asleep because I was tired. Yeah. Uh, So it's, it's an argument, a long winded argument to uh, really, I guess be mindful of your uh, mindset when you're watching a movie because it can really affect your judgment. Because <laughs> uh, I came out of watching it, you know, the second half again. I I was really into it. I was, uh, you know, when uh, Michelle Rodriguez showed up to save the day. I was that was a fuck yeah moment that I was not expecting to have. And uh, when Zoe Saldana has that big encounter with one of the giant cats, like a panther or something. And she gets ready because she thinks that the panther is going to attack her. But then the panther just kind of bows down to let her ride it, you know, so she can go fight. And that, I thought that was really cool. There's like all these little moments in, in, in that final climatic battle that are, are pretty cool. When uh, Joel David Moore, something happens to his avatar. So he has to get out of the, the machine. And now he's a human and he's freaking out. But then you see him like get ready and grab some guns and go back out into the battle as a human. <laughs> I thought that was yes. cool. All those moments, ended up, like I walked out of it or I, I came out of that so much more positive about the movie. <laughs> so uh, so I would land on three stars. You know, it's 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 just, it's an okay story that is very, uh, very well told. It's a crowd pleaser. It's a well told crowd pleaser. But then when you add on the, what it meant in the context of its release mm-hmm. and how it transcended down the line i'm gonna give it that extra star so i'm gonna end with three and a half stars which is it's okay (laughs) yeah i i think that most people should watch avatar at least once uh ideally under the best screening atmosphere possible get a big screen get a good sound system make sure you're awake and uh just get through it it's not even three hours really it's like 242 i think yeah and then you don't have to watch it ever again (laughs) <laughs> you're getting what you're getting out of it is probably what you're gonna get forever. I would agree with all of that. That's I ended up siding with a, a B minus because for all the things we talked about and for the visual achievement that this movie is, uh, a C. If I gave it a C, what that would by, mean by definition is that it's average, and it is not average. Mm-hmm. The story is very meh, but what you're seeing is definitely an accomplishment in the visual realm of filmmaking. Um, so it's a B minus with the, what you're saying. I think you should watch it. Uh, it's not a movie I have any interest in owning. It's not a movie I'm sure I'm ever going to watch again in my life, but it's worth seeing once and it's not bad. There are parts of it that are just kind of like, ugh, but 
it's not a bad movie. So there you have it. We took a definite scenic route, but Hulu and I both endorse a one-time viewing of Avatar specifically. Uh, if you can, 3D or you know the highest quality possible. Um, but yeah, it's a movie. It's something that happened, and we will see over the next 10 years what the impact of the fucking four sequels is going to be. That's the real question mark. That's, what is James Cameron bringing to the table? And it's going to be heartbreaking if after this discussion and all the speculation and whatever else is going to bring, you know, the next few months are going to bring regarding Avatar as a franchise, if uh, if Avatar 2, against all expectations, lands with a thud, yeah, that that's just going to be such a shame. Because I, I don't... I mean, I'm sure there are people that are rooting for that. <laughs> that want Cameron to face failure of some sort. But I, I can tell you I'm not one of them. I don't think you are either. We just want to see... No what else he does this time. So that that's exciting. It is. We'll cross all those bridges when we come to them, but for this episode of The Contrarians, for Avatar, it's going to wrap up the discussion. Julio, what's on deck next? On deck next, we are joining the Muppets again. It's it's time to yep. get back to the Muppethon, and it is a fresh movie this time, and it's a movie that we've both seen, and it's a movie we've both referenced before. Probably not as much as Avatar, but uh, we're going to be doing The Muppets Take Manhattan. God bless. That's our first episode of 2022. Additionally, uh, I was just uh, on the Film Busters podcast. Alex, I, I helped you dodge a bullet because I <laughs> I bought the criterion for Marty Scorsese's The Age of Innocence, his, his one period piece that he's directed. And I knew that you would have zero interest in watching it or <laughs> discussing it with me. But I knew that uh, Ben, Paul, and Adam would probably be game. So I I went on to the Filmbusters show. I, I used my patron pick with them and I, we talked about the Age of Innocence. And that episode is out. By the time that this episode drops, it's definitely been out for a few weeks. And uh, I think if you've watched the Age of Innocence, you should definitely listen to it. If you haven't watched the Age of Innocence, uh, well, go ahead and watch it unless you're like Alex and you hate period pieces. And uh, don't just eat them. <laughs> I don't think that this one would change your mind. How about that? It's it's very, okay. very period-y. Also, uh, this was a while ago, and I'm pretty sure that I never got to bring it up on the show. A while ago, I discussed Superman 3 with Stu of the Stu World Order podcast, and then later he brought me on for Superman 2. And so that episode is out now, and it is nice. obviously a very different discussion from our uh, Superman 3 discussion, which is what makes it so much fun. So uh, you should go and check that out as well. Everybody's watched Superman 2, I imagine, but if not, it's on HBO Max. Check it out. Uh, and, and then here, Stu and I discuss many of the things that, uh, I mean, I think it's arguably the best of the Donner, Christopher Reeve movies, but uh-huh. there's room for disagreement about what makes it good. And uh, mainly, Stu and I had had different ideas, uh, different takes on what's good and what's bad about the way that the Louis Lane character is, is handled there. So check out that uh, episode of the Sewer Order podcast. Go check out that episode of uh, Film Busters podcast. And uh, and then by the time that you're sick of hearing me talk to other people, then we'll be back with the Muppets Think Manhattan. <laughs> You'll hear me talk to Alex. <laughs> All right, Julio. Well, with that out of the way, those pleasantries, we're going to move on into perennial plugs. We start by giving thanks to the Festive Years, who kick us off with Last Stand and take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. 
Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothwieser is the man behind our logo, behind uh, all the graphics on our website, on our Patreon page, on our merch. Uh, he can be reached on Twitter at Mildemonios, M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. Also email him at mildemonios at hotmail.com or check out his website for a look at all his other work, mildemonios.pe. You can see a list of his uh, novels. He's a, he's a writer, a fantasy writer, mostly. And, of course, like I said, he's a podcaster. He has the show Nación Combi, which is about Peruvian current affairs, and the show Marginal, which is about economy. Uh, Hans, thank you for all your support. And thank you to Ms. Zoe Perez, who helps curate our social media game. If you're on Facebook, you can find us on facebook.com slash contrarianprime or on Instagram. We have an account at contrarianprime. Uh, Zoe helps run both of those for us we have on our facebook page some exclusive videos uh, that she puts together uh, in relation to episode previews things like that and then on our instagram audio clips video clips interactive graphics a bunch of stuff that julio and i do not have the facilities to figure out how to do so zoe we appreciate all the work you do in helping spread the word of this podcast and with that in mind that is going to do it for avatar and that is going to do it for this episode of the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong and we will catch you next time